Hello, and welcome to the Two Guys, Four Balls podcast. Hello and welcome to the Two Guys, Four Balls podcast. This is the Week 15 analysis. We're going to start off with the Thursday night matchup, San Francisco at Seattle. Um, If you're looking at the score and you're looking at the box score 21-13, you would think this was a close game. Uh, Let me assure you, it was not. This was San Francisco dominated this from start to finish. Um, Brock Purdy had another efficient game. I'm not going to sit here and say that he is the greatest quarterback of all time like some other media outlets wanted to make it seem like. But he had a very efficient game. He managed the game well, which is all Kyle Shanahan wants from him right now. Now, don't get me wrong. They, he made some nice throws in this game. I'm not saying he I don't want to take anything away from Brock Purdy because what he's done the last few weeks has been good. But he's not on Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, any of those levels yet. So let's just pump the brakes on him for now. Um, but he's had two really good games. He had to go into Seattle. Seattle's never an easy place to win. Um, but Christian McCaffrey, the stars the star showed up for this, for this game. Christian McCaffrey showed up. George Kittle, the defense. So... Um, in reality, San Francisco's defense is what's going to win them games moving forward and going into the playoffs. But again, Brock Purdy had a good game. Uh, Geno Smith is starting to revert back to, I don't want to say New York Jets to Geno because he's not that bad, but, um, the turnovers, some of the careless decisions, but again, most quarterbacks look that way when they play San Francisco because you're going up against the best defense in the NFL. So he was getting hit all night. They were in the backfield all night. So obviously that's going to lead to some turnovers, some bad throws, uh, the throw to Fant in the fourth quarter to get their only touchdown on the board was a good throw. It was a good play call. Uh, they had to lock it, go up the one side. Uh, Fant ran up. Well, they did like two seam routes, essentially, and the safety went over to lock it, didn't cover Fant. That's how they got their only touchdown. Um, Kenneth Walker looked somewhat healthy in this game, so that was good. Um, to see him back out on the field for Seattle. But once again, Seattle's... You know, defense just was young. There's a lot of careless mistakes by Seattle in this game, like the turnover before half that let Christian McCaffrey get a touchdown and kind of put this game away uh, if you're watching the game. Um, you know, and Seattle's fighting hard. They're, they're fighting for the playoffs, so it's not like these games are meaningless. The, all these games down the stretch mean something, and with the red-hot Detroit Lions coming in, um, you know, winning six in a row, they – they uh, six and one, I believe uh, – it's Seattle needs to step it up. They can't lose any more games or they can't lose out. You know, it's, it's neck and neck now with Detroit. Uh, they did beat Detroit. So they, they do have that above them if it's a tie, but now we're getting into the part of the football season and schedule where every game matters, playoff implications with every game. Um, but San Francisco looks like a problem. Uh, if they had Trey Lance, Jimmy Garoppolo, or Brock Purdy back there, I would be nervous about this team because that defense is a championship-caliber defense. The only thing this team needs to avoid, which we say this every year for San Francisco, feels like, is the injuries. They can't get someone injured. So hopefully um, Debo can make it back in time for the playoffs. I know they said it wasn't his knee and it was just a high ankle sprain. Uh, sure, but he needs. hopefully he can be back after Week 18. Hopefully he can get some rest for the rest of the regular season because they already clinched the division, um, and hopefully he can be ready for the playoff run. So many times a game like this, and we'll talk about this a lot throughout the course of this podcast as usual, comes down to who took advantage of opportunities and who didn't. So in this game, 
You know, it was a pretty even game for most of the first half with neither offense really getting it going on the scoreboard. Quandry Diggs has a chance to get an interception in this game. It's, you talked about how efficient Brock Purdy was. He had one horrible pass, and that was right to Quandry Diggs. So right. you have an opportunity to make a play, and you just drop the interception. That That is an opportunity to, potential, to potentially put points on the board in a low-scoring first half, and you blow it. So now, because of that, San Francisco gets the punt pinned it deep. Then on the next possession, Travis Homer fumbles. The 49ers recover after Dre Greenlaw, who deserves a lot of credit. Again, the 49ers linebacker core is really good, and he's one of them. Now you fumble, the 49ers recover, and all of a sudden the 49ers go in the half with a 14-3 lead because they took advantage when they had an opportunity to, to force the turnover, and the Seahawks did not. That's the difference in a game like this, and especially when you're Seattle, you're a team that's reeling as of late, you can't have that. But again, that's, it's stuff like that that separates the okay teams and Seattle's okay right now. They're in their eye. They're not nearly as good as they were to start off the year, and they're kind of reverting back to the mean. But a good team like the 49ers takes advantage of those opportunities. You talked about the injuries with San Francisco and they need to avoid injuries. The crazy thing is this 49ers team is so deep at so many different positions that they've been able to absorb these injuries and been okay so far. So, you know, you talked about the loss of Debo Samuel. We don't even remember Elijah Mitchell <laughs> and the injury he suffered because they've got guys who can replicate what those guys do on the field. As much, of it, as much impact as those guys have, the 49ers are fortunate enough and they've built a roster that's strong enough that they can overcome that and still be able to be an explosive offense. So now, without Samuel, without somebody like Elijah Mitchell, you can finally throw the ball to George Kittle more. And George Kittle was an impact player in this game. And for those who those who know me and have discussed football with me know that I consider George Kittle to be the best tight end in football. Not the best receiving tight end. I will defer to Travis Kelsey on that. But as far as all-around tight end, when you talk about the blocking, the physicality, and the explosive run-after-catch plays, that's George Kittle. And you got to see all of that in this game. And Kittle got to play a bigger role in the offense because of some of the other injuries. So the 49ers just have so many pieces. They just have to keep some of it healthy. <laughs> you know, as long as not everyone gets hurt, they'll be okay. Uh, and when you look at how this offense is set up for the 49ers, Christian McCaffrey touched the ball 32 times in this game. And Brock Purdy only threw 26 passes. So this is the Christian McCaffrey show on offense, even though you've got other pieces. Again, George Kittle being a piece, Brandon Ayuk, even somebody like Juwan Jennings being a nice complimentary piece. It's still centered around Christian McCaffrey. And in a very short amount of time, it's become an offense centered around Christian McCaffrey. So, you know, there's a lot of people that are going to say, oh, Brock Purdy has made all the difference in this and that. Brock Purdy is doing a great job of handing the ball off to Christian McCaffrey. And for the most part, avoiding making the critical mistakes. So I'll give Purdy credit for that. But uh, let's not get it confused as to as if they need Purdy uh, to execute at a high level. Again, there's a trust factor with Purdy and Kyle Shanahan that I did not see with Jimmy Garoppolo. That continued in this game. But again, the 49ers aren't asking Purdy to do but so much. I did say to watch out for Jordan Mason. Uh, within the last couple of weeks, and Mason had a big run to end this game. Just not sure why he's not getting the ball a little bit more. I mean, I understand when you have Christian McCaffrey, you want to use him, but uh, we know McCaffrey's injury 
three history. And again, I talked about how he had over 30 touches in this game. I feel like you can split some of those carries with Jordan Mason. So I'd, I'd like to see Mason get a little more work, nothing extreme, just eight to 10 carries to give McCaffrey a breather. And maybe down the stretch as the 49ers start to, you know, clinch the division and clinch a certain seed and things of that nature, you might see a little more Mason, but I, I still say keep an eye on him. Uh, as for the Seahawks, you know, things are starting to fall apart. You talked about Geno Smith and, and starting to lose some of the luster he had early in the season. Uh, Kenneth Walker, this was his first game back uh, from injury. And for the fourth straight game that he's played in, he was under 50 yards rushing. So you're not seeing the same explosiveness out of him that you saw uh, when he first took over the starting role after Rashad Penny went down. Uh, Tyler Lockett gets injured in this game, suffers a broken finger. So everything's starting to fall apart for Seattle. And these are the kind of breaks that you catch or don't catch when you're a struggling team. And now you're Seattle, all of a sudden, after Cinderella starts of the season, you're 500 and have to go to, to Kansas City to play the Chiefs next week. So things are falling apart in a hurry for the Seahawks. As for the 49ers, they continue to, to rise up. They've got the commanders coming into town next week. And uh, the Ascension, there's no real end in sight for the 49ers and their rise. Like I said, as long as they stay reasonably healthy. They can afford to miss a couple pieces, but just stay reasonably healthy. So next, we'll get into one of the craziest games. and You can make a strong argument. The craziest game of all time. The Minnesota Vikings with a 39-36 overtime win over the Indianapolis Colts. After trailing this game 33-0. Honestly, as crazy as this game was, if, if we wanted to, we could probably spend the next two or three hours, like the rest of the podcast, just discussing this game. I mean, it was it was that crazy. You know, we're waiting for some of us are waiting for Minnesota to kind of fall back to earth a bit. You know, you saw some of that with uh, the Vikings entering last week as underdogs against the at the time five and seven Lions. Uh, so there's still, like, not a whole lot of belief in the Vikings. And so they come out in this game with a chance to, to make a statement that, no, we're, we're actually back, we're actually legit, and they don't show up at all in the first half. They don't do anything right. They get a punt blocked early in the game. Uh, so the special teams is not getting the job done. Uh, Dalvin Cook has another critical fumble. And so your, your offense is now turning the ball over. Uh, Zaire Franklin forced that fumble, by the way, and Zaire Franklin continues to be a beast in the absence of Shaquille, Shaquille Leonard. I want to see what those two look like, you know, playing together for an entire season. So hopefully the Colts can find a way to get Franklin and Leonard out there together. But uh, without Leonard, Franklin has really shown up. And that was another play uh, where Franklin's making a big impact. So now you've got special teams blunders. You've got offensive blunders. You've got the defense giving up whatever the Colts want. Um, there's almost a play made by the defense with a Michael Pittman Jr. fumble that was uh, that would have been ran back for a touchdown, but it was blown dead. I thought that whistle was a bit premature because Pittman was still fighting for yardage, and I thought he was still making enough progress for, for the referees to say that the forward momentum, the forward progress was not stopped. But uh, that was a borderline call, so I wasn't too upset with that. But once the Vikings lost out on that break, you felt like this game is probably going to be over. That was the one chance for Minnesota to get back in the game. You know, because at, at that, that time, you're talking about a 23-0 game. 
Uh, and, you know, if they return to Pittman to fumble for a touchdown, then now, okay, 23-7, we're back in the game second quarter. There's plenty of time to go. But you lose out on that play. And then Kirk Cousins throws a pick six to Julian Blackman, playing the most important position in football, playmaking safety. And now you're talking a 30 to nothing game. You add another field goal, 33-0. Minnesota's completely inept on offense in this game. Three first downs on the first eight possessions. So just three and out, three and out, three and out. And you, you think there's no chance, based on what you saw, no chance that Minnesota can come back in this game. And all of a sudden, everything falls apart for the Colts. Everything. Offensively, you're not getting anything done. Of course, they lose Jonathan Taylor to injury, and they insisted on running Zach Moss. And Zach Moss had some tough runs in this game, but um, there's not a lot of big plays, so you lose that big play element that Taylor brings to your backfield. Uh, Deion Jackson, I thought, did bring some of that big play presence, but... Uh, I didn't think he got quite enough touches in this game. I thought they went too much to Zach Moss, especially considering they hadn't really gone to him much since they acquired him from the Bills. Um, but, you know, then you get into the game getting closer. Justin Jefferson is doing his thing the second half. Kirk Cousins is and I got to give Kirk Cousins credit. Uh, he was making some good passes in the second half. KJ Osborne really came alive in this game and uh, made some tremendous plays. He had uh, a career day, and it could have been an even better day had he uh, caught one deep pass that he dove for and, and uh, initially was ruled a catch, but was uh, rightfully overturned. So now the Vikings are battling back, battling back. And then I got to blow the whistle on the referees. The absolute worst call of the season, and considering some calls we saw just this weekend alone, that's a strong statement, but the worst call of the season, ruling Deion Jackson, I don't know, down, I don't, I don't know why they blew the play there. Deion Jackson dropped the ball while he was on his feet. He wasn't falling down. He wasn't maybe on a knee. He was standing upright. And the play was and dropped the ball, and the, and the play's blown dead. Jandon Sullivan should have had a touchdown there on a recovery. And then the refs make it worse. And I talked about this a few weeks ago with J.J. Watt. It's one thing to get the call wrong. And I've begged and pleaded that the referees let these plays play out and then you can overturn it if you see the replay and realize it wasn't a fumble. You can always go back and fix that call. You can't fix it if you blow the play there. So you got the call wrong. Then you compound the problem by giving Chandler Sullivan a 15-yard penalty for acting the way he should act when you blow an opportunity as a referee for the team to score a touchdown. That was absolutely terrible to, to double your mistake. You know, it's one thing to have the mistake of calling the play wrong, but then to penalize the Vikings for acting the way you should react when it's, the referee calls you that, that was terrible. So you're thinking, okay, the Colts caught another break. They'll find a way to close this game out. But no, they just let Dalvin Cook catch a screen pass and, and just waltz right on down the field. Nobody for the Colts was interested in tackling anymore. And then you get to overtime. DeForest Buckner gets called for a roughing the passer. So you're, just, you're continuing this collapse. And, uh, you know, the Colts find a way to lose the game. So, you know, I got to give the Vikings credit for hanging in there, for staying tough, for staying resilient. And, again, I got to give Kirk Cousins credit. You know, I'm not the quickest to do that, but I have to do it in this game. You, you come back from that type of deficit and you play that well in the second half, you deserve some props. 
And my coach of the year, Kevin O'Connell, this is another notch on his belt that to me at this point, again, this is just my opinion, that Kevin O'Connell's kind of running away with coach of the year as far as I'm concerned. When you look at team expectations versus what they're doing this year, and when you look at how the Vikings are performing in key moments versus how we've expected Kirk Cousins to perform in key moments at certain times throughout his career, including his time with the Vikings. On the other hand, Jeff Saturday, where are you at this game? You know, I'm, I'm tired of hearing Jeff Saturday, leader of men, what a great job he's doing and all this other stuff. I'm tired, I'm tired of hearing the leader of men. Win a game. You know, it, again, after his first game, everybody wanted to sit there, everybody in the media wanted to sit there and say, oh, look, look how justified the Colts are in hiring Jeff Saturday. What a, what a genius move by Jim Irsay. And everybody who questioned the Jeff Saturday hiring has to shut up now. Well, no, no. All of a sudden, all them Jeff Saturday fans, you can't find them. You certainly won't find them after this game. So, Great win for the Vikings. Jeff Saturday, you will have coached for a couple of months in your career, and you will have on your resume largest blown lead in the history of the NFL. Congratulations to you. That's perfect for Atario. Yeah, so in a game that uh, Jeff Saturday was going to be able to put a feather in his coaching cap, especially being up 33-0 at halftime, um, there's no way the Colts bring him back next year. They're going probably going to let him finish out the rest of the season. Um, but there, there, you just, and I don't think the city of Indianapolis will allow the Colts to bring him back next year. Even if he goes undefeated, even if they, even, even if, even if they win out the rest of the season, um, this could have been a huge win for the Colts, especially with the Titans losing again. And as we've been talking about Julius, like just like the NFC South, no one wants to win the AFC South. So this would have been a huge win for the Colts. It should have been a win for the Colts. And I, I'm i speechless for what happened in the second half. Um, I do want to kind of toot my own horn. Um, I definitely called the comeback. I said at halftime, and I know you can you can go on record and say that I definitely did this, and you can verify this, and I have the receipts to do this. I said at halftime. Kirk Cousins is going to lead the... I did say it was going to be 36-33. I'm sorry. It was 39-36. to But I definitely said at halftime, the Vikings were going to come back and win. Um, I don't know why I felt that way, but I just felt that way, and that's exactly what happened. And, you know, the refs kind of screwed Minnesota, too, because I know you talked about this. Uh, Minnesota had two defensive touchdowns called back. So they wouldn't even have had to have had this epic of a comeback if the refs weren't just awful in this game. And the refs were bad all all week. Let's not even just say it was this one game, but the refs were just bad all week. Um, but yeah, going into halftime up 33-0, even I still didn't think that that was a big enough lead for the Colts because they kicked five field goals. Their only touchdowns were from the defensive side of the ball and special teams. It. It just doesn't make any sense. You know, you can't kick five field goals or four field goals, five, no, five field goals, and, and be satisfied with that as a team. It, you're, you're leaving, and Minnesota doesn't even have that good of a defense. I thought this was kind of showing Minnesota's bad side to their team, right? Dalvin Cook was doing nothing all game besides one big run. He had the one big run, and then he was bottled up until, like you said, the screen pass. Um Justin Jefferson wasn't doing anything. He got hit, hit big when he went across the middle when they were throwing out of their own end zone. 
um, in the in the first half was just abysmal. And then I don't know what Vikings team decided to show up in the second half, man, but I don't know if it was great coaching by Kevin O'Connor, like you're talking about, or if it was just really bad, poor coaching from Indianapolis. I think it might have been a little combination of both. But I feel like to lose a 33 to nothing lead has to. I don't, everyone's like, oh, this is why Matt Ryan sucks. Oh, this is why the defense for the Colts sucks. This is schematic. This is this is from the top down. I don't even blame the players on this. Yes, you have to go out and execute, blah, 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 blah. But why were they passing so much in the second half? You could have literally gone out there and run it three times and punt, and I think you would have won the game. Just don't let the clock stop. I just don't. I don't know, man. I just don't get I don't get anything that the Colts did in the second half. I just don't understand it. It looks like they played the first half to win and they were like, okay. I don't know if Jim Irsay gave a call down, like, hey, we're trying to get a draft pick. We want a quarterback. Stop winning. I just there I have no words for what happened. Um Yeah. As for KJ Osborne, fantasy playoff darling right now, if anyone had him on his team, on their team. Uh, Kirk Cousins, also, if you had him on the team, getting a ton of points. Um, but inexcusable to lose a game that you're winning 33 nothing at a, in a professional setting. And you're supposed to be the best of the best of the best. You should never lose a 33 nothing lead. I just, it's unacceptable. Moving on to the afternoon Saturday game, I guess. Uh, the middle Saturday game, Baltimore and Cleveland. Um, in a game where, again, it looked like neither of your team really wanted to win. Um, Cleveland won 13 to three. And for all those Ravens fans and all those Lamar Jackson detractors I've heard for the last two weeks, Ravens are still winning. Look how good the Ravens are without Lamar Jackson. They scored 10 and 13 points in those wins. I don't care what you say to me. Lamar Jackson, if it's not a serious injury, and I hope it's not getting hurt might be the best thing to happen to him for this money. Cause everyone was like, why are we trying to give Lamar Jackson all this money? Look, we're still winning the division. Blah, blah, blah. Guess what? Since he's been injured, you're now not winning the division. And the same thing that happened last year when he got hurt after y'all were winning the division and winning the AFC at that point in time when he got hurt last year. Y'all are gonna y'all could potentially miss the playoffs again, Baltimore. I don't think it's gonna happen because everybody else in the AFC is starting to lose too. Dolphins, Jets. But it could. So y'all better hope Lamar Jackson comes back because without Lamar Jackson, this Ravens team is doing nothing. This was a horrible offensive showing. And it's not even like the Browns came out and did anything. They really didn't. And if you want to know how bad things are for the Ravens, Justin Tusker missed a shorter than 45-yard field goal. So I it it was just bad, bad, bad for the Ravens. Um, again, the Browns didn't really do much. There wasn't much offense in this game. Uh, Nick Chubb didn't even run for 100 yards. He almost did, 99. Uh, J.K. Dobbins ran for 125 yards on 13 carries. But again, this was this was just a poor offensive showing and. Again, I think if Lamar Jackson's in this game, they run away with this game easily. Uh, Huntley threw it 30 times, only completed 17 of them for 138 yards, and he had a really bad interception. Um, Yeah, this just was 
So it was just a bad game. And and like I said, Justin Tucker missed two field goals in this game. And the reason I'm not talking about the one is because it was he's trying to bomb one before half and it got blocked. So, you know, I'm not too upset about that one. It was like a 58-yarder or something, 56-yarder. But in just an ugly, ugly game, Cleveland comes away with a win. Deshaun Watson has not looked good at all since coming back. And he hasn't made this offense better like people thought. Um, again, hasn't played in two years. I think he's trying to knock a, knock a bunch of rust off, but this was definitely a snoozer of a game. If you didn't watch this game, you didn't miss much. Yeah, the main headline for this game is is obvious. The Ravens going against one of the worst defenses in the league, or at least most underperforming defenses in the league, only managed three points. And that's on the defense that, again, the Browns defense hasn't been good all year. Uh, they just recently lost Jeremiah Owusu koromoa to injury, so that weakens the defense even more. And you can't score more than three points on that defense. That speaks to how sad your offensive supporting cast is. And it takes a special quarterback like Lamar Jackson, and I mean a special quarterback, to make this supporting cast look average. When you have an average to below average quarterback like you do in Tyler Huntley, this is what the team looks like. Now, the Ravens set an interesting tone in this game. Their first possession of the game, they get they did get down the field. They had a fourth and goal. They chose to run Patrick Ricard. And he came up short. And this is one of those things where you are you are outthinking yourself. Okay, Patrick, you mentioned how efficient J.K. Dobbins was in this game running the ball. If you're going to run the ball on fourth down. Why not run it with J.K. Dobbins? By the way, this is the second week in a row Dobbins has gone over 120 yards. So even though he's not 100%, he's clearly your best running back. But a lot of these coaches are too smart for their own good sometimes. And they let the analytics get the best of them and all this other stuff. I can understand the logic of, okay, we have a 300-pound running back. Let's run him on fourth, fourth and goal. But again, Last couple of weeks, you've been successful running the ball with J.K. Dobbins, and yet at a time where you needed to convert a touchdown to get momentum on your side early, you choose to go the Ricard route, and it's just it's just one of those things where you're overthinking it. And you missed, you mentioned uh, Justin Tucker missing a 48-yard field goal to in the first half, and if there was any sign, like, that might be the most ominous sign in football. If Justin Tucker is missing kicks that are shorter than like 70 yards, it's just not going to be your day. <laughs> I mean, Justin Tucker is that level of kicker right now where it, it was shocking to see him actually miss a kick. And you know, there might have been adverse weather conditions and wind being a factor and all that. It, it doesn't matter. We expect Justin Tucker to make everything. So for him to miss a kick, uh, that's just shocking. And like you said, another kick of Tucker's was blocked later in the game, but that at first miss is the one where you kind of felt like, okay, nothing, nothing is going right for Baltimore if that happens. Still, with all that ineptitude on offense for Baltimore, Cleveland, like you said, was just as inept on offense. So you're still going into the second half with a close game. And you start off the second half with a red zone interception from Tyler Huntley. So you start the first half with a missed fourth and goal situation. You start the second half with a turnover in the red zone. That's how you lose. Now, Denzel Ward made a nice play, beating Deshaun Jackson on his inside slant. 
But listen to what I just said. That's Denzel Ward beating Deshaun Jackson. Deshaun Jackson should not be having passes thrown his way in 2022. But this is what the Ravens do. If you're an over-the-hill wide receiver, come down to Baltimore. They're looking for you. Definitely not in the red zone. He should only be running fly, <laughs> fly routes. But yeah, you take Deshaun Jackson, then you sign to stretch the field, and that's the guy who you're going to on short throws in the red zone. That, that, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> so you do that. You get a turnover there. The next possession for Cleveland after they get bailed out by that play, they go down and score, score the first and only touchdown of the game. Uh, nice touchdown throw to Donovan Peoples-Jones. And now all of a sudden, you're really in trouble. Then Baltimore comes right back. And Demarcus Robinson, who right now is your go-to receiver. Again, listen to what I just said. Demarcus Robinson is your go-to receiver. So sad this receiver core is. What does he do? Fumble. <laughs> and, and now all of a sudden, you've got another turnover. That fumble was forced by John Johnson III, playing the most important position in football, playmaking safety. So now you have these key turnovers. And if you're a bad offense, and there aren't many offenses in football right now worse than Baltimore's, you can't afford these crucial turnovers. You certainly can't afford them when you're in positions to score. And that that's the game. So throughout the game, Baltimore put no pressure on Cleveland to do anything on offense. So Cleveland was able to play their game, which is just kind of fried Nick Chubb, asked Deshaun Watson to make a throw here and there. Like you said, Watson is still shaking off a lot of rust. So the ceiling for this Browns offense is very low right now, but it's good enough to beat Baltimore because you have nothing around a quarterback who is not that good. So now if you're Baltimore, all this time you've been controlling your own destiny in the division, that's no longer the case. You're going to have to figure out something in a hurry. Good sign for Baltimore is they'll be playing a Falcons team next week that kind of looks like them on offense. So you got two struggling offenses they're going to meet next week. And, you know, Atlanta's defense is not that good, so maybe Baltimore can, can push through. But like, like Patrick said, without Lamar Jackson – this team is hard-pressed against any defense to score more than 10 or 13 points. So Baltimore is really in trouble right now as far as the division goes. Like you said, they'll probably still make the playoffs because nobody in that AFC race seems to want to step up in that wild-card race. But Baltimore, you're not in the position you thought you would be a few weeks ago. Uh, I do have to blow a continuous whistle on Cade York. Again, we talked about him last week and complaining and crying because they didn't let him attempt a 68-yard field goal. So what does he do to follow up that sadness? Missed two more field goals. And again, yeah, the weather wasn't perfect or anything, but again, if you're crying about kicking 68-yard field goals, how about make the kicks we're letting you attempt? So congratulations to Kate Dork because now with those two misses, you are tied for the lead league in missed field goals on the season. Keep it up and keep crying for more field goals when you're missing the ones they let you kick. Into the last game of the Saturday triple header, the Buffalo Bills able to knock off the Miami Dolphins 32-29. It was what was a very entertaining game, the complete opposite of what you got with Baltimore and Cleveland. So if you survived that snooze fest in the middle of the day, you got rewarded with a nice game Saturday night. Now, to the surprise of no one, Bills Mafia drew the attention of the officials. And I have to blow, blow the whistle on them because I, you know, you appreciate how wild they are and the fact that they're throwing each other through tables and all this other stuff. 
but you can't be throwing snowballs and ice balls because a lot of that looked like ice that they were throwing onto the field. They're throwing it onto the field during plays, so you're impacting the game. You just you just can't have that. But again, we're talking Bills Mafia. If there's one crowd in the NFL that would get like a delay of game warning, it would be Bills Mafia. If there's one crowd that almost got like an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty, it's Bills Mafia. So uh, no surprise there. But getting into the game itself, uh, the difference in the first half is uh, Buffalo was able to finish off drives and Miami wasn't. Uh, both offenses were moving really well in the first half. Uh, Raheem Mostert had a monstrous first half. Uh, he had a highly impressive 68-yard run and finished uh, with over 100 yards rushing in the first half. And he stepped up in a huge way in the absence of Jeff Wilson Jr., uh, of course, reclaiming at least for a game or however long Wilson's going to be out. Mostert's reclaiming that feature back role in Miami. So I uh, took advantage of an increased role in this game, and it paid off for Miami. But uh, like I said, Buffalo was able to finish drives, get the ball in the end zone. Uh, Miami got stopped a couple times. Tyreek Hill wasn't able to come up with a couple of contested catches. Uh, Trent Sherfield dropped a, a touchdown in this game that uh, ended up uh, having to lead to a field goal uh, for Miami instead of a touchdown. And then I have to give Josh Allen credit. Uh, the Bills took a pretty big gamble, in my opinion, at the end of the first half. Uh, by allowing Allen to go out there and throw a pass when they had three points in the bag, to go out there and throw a pass as time expired in the first half. So if you miss this play, you get nothing. But yet Allen was able to roll out and uh, hit James Cook the third in the end zone for a touchdown, and Cook continues to uh, have something of a role in this offense. I'd like to see them work Cook more into the offense even more because it seems like he flashes whenever he gets opportunities, but Cook comes down with that touchdown catch to end the half. Again, a highly impressive throw by Josh Allen, a risky, risky call, but it uh, paid off for Buffalo, and uh, those are the kind of plays you make when you're a winning team. Uh, getting to the second half of this game, uh, Jalen Waddle finally catches a long touchdown pass. I've talked about how uh, since he had kind of a leg issue, it seemed like he uh, he wasn't making a whole lot of explosive plays. He, was, he wasn't getting 40 yards as receiving in these games. Uh, he looked back to form in this game, so that's a good sign for Miami moving forward. Um, he had a roughing the punter penalty. It was a, a very silly. I, I, don't, I don't even know what the goal was. I mean, it looked like the defender for Buffalo just, just ran into the punter with, with no intention to block the punt. He, he just wanted a penalty. So that, that was a weird play. Uh, but that, that, that set up a Miami uh, go-ahead touchdown. But like I said, like I said, uh, the Bills were able to hang in there, uh, keep making plays happen. Again, Josh Allen deserves credit in this game for pulling off a win. Uh, as far as the game-winning field goal that Buffalo got, I'm not sure what Cater Coho was doing in coverage, but he got a pass interference on a play where if he just looked, he could have knocked that pass down. He was in perfect position and just panicked, and instead of Making a play on the ball, he just decided to shove the receiver. So just complete loss of where he was on the field or just, just not having the right awareness or whatever the case was. But uh, no ball skills shown on that play. That ends up uh, costing Miami the game pretty much. So, But again, uh, overall, just a, a very good game. We saw plays made on both sides of the ball. 
Uh, Tredavious White finally started to look like Tredavious White in this game. So uh, that's big. He did, White did give up a long uh, touchdown to Tyreek Hill, but it's not a whole lot of shame in doing that. There's a lot of other great corners who can say the same thing. But the Bills need Tredavious White. They need to get some of that depth in their secondary back. So this was overall an encouraging game for the Bills with uh, Tredavious White. Uh, Jalen Phillips continues to flash defensively for Miami. He had another big moment with the strip sack in this game. So uh, Jalen Phillips continues to be, again, a guy that I badly wanted the Raiders to draft. But uh, he continues to pay dividends for Miami. But, you know, Buffalo got a key win here. And in what's been a tough, tough AFC East, Buffalo now has separation in this division after winning this game. And, yeah, the coast is clear for uh, for the Bills now. You get uh, Chicago next week, and it's, it certainly looks like uh, the AFC East is, is all Buffalo once again, even though, again, they got some competition in their division. But at the end of the day, the cream rose to the top. Buffalo got this division. Uh, as for Miami, they're going to have to beat a Green Bay team that can play. <laughs> I mean, you know, this, this is a very mercurial Packers team this year, so you don't know what version of Green Bay will show up for that game. But uh, it's certainly a game that Miami is capable of winning. And uh, if they can win that game, all of a sudden, they're right back where they want to be in the wild card picture. So uh, Miami still has work to do, but... This game for Miami looked better than the last couple of games that Miami has played in. So you're encouraged by that, but at the same time, good teams find a way to win games like this. So Miami still has another step to take, but at least you can say they're headed in the right direction after playing better against Buffalo. So I'm normally not one for big moral victories, Julius. I'm not one that likes to say moral victories. I feel like you go out, you either win or lose, right? But... All week, in every media outlet, all you heard, Miami can't play in cold weather. Miami can't play in cold weather. Cold weather's going to affect Miami. Even during the broadcast of the game, it's 75 degrees right now in Miami. Who the fuck cares what temperature it is in Miami? We're playing in Buffalo. Who cares? Why does it? Shut up. I don't, I don't care. And guess what? Miami came out and proved they can play in the cold weather. Shocker. Professional athletes can play in cold weather. Um... <laughs> So I hope we don't have to hear about that crap anymore because, oh, look what shirt uh, Mike McDaniels wearing. Who cares? I don't care. I don't. It, who cares? Anyway, in a game that Miami should have won, as you said, Sheriffville dropped a touchdown. Buffalo coaching and Josh Allen made some terrible decisions that they got away with in this game. The one that you're talking about, I'm blowing the whistle. I don't care they got a touchdown. I'm still blowing the whistle on Josh Allen <laughs> scrambling and letting the clock hit zero. I don't care about the play call. You had 10 seconds left. This man scrambled and let the time run out. They got the touchdown. Woo-hoo. But if this is the playoffs or if this was a more important type game and you don't get the three points right there, they don't win this game at the end. Guess what they won by? Three points. So it's just just a bad, just a very bad play call. and or just Because I bet you... I bet you McDermott was sitting there. No, 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 no. Yes! Yes, I guarantee you that was the whole coaching staff. Because that was just a... He's lucky that him scrambling all night and buying extra time, the Dolphins secondary couldn't do anything. That's how they got beat on all their plays. They actually played well 
until the unscheduled plays happen. So, um, uh, one of my big things I've been saying all year, Julius, about Buffalo is you got to stop running Josh Allen. I know his 44-yard run is key to this victory that they had, but he also took way too many hits. Uh, he had another nasty hit in this game where he got popped, and I don't know why he jumps in the air so much as a quarterback. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why most running backs or tight ends or any, any position jumps in the air, to be honest. Most of the time, it doesn't end well for you. Um, but you know, I just I'm not a I'm not a fan of Josh Allen running. I'm just not. Um, and maybe they'll prove me wrong, and maybe they'll win a Super Bowl. But to be honest, if Buffalo doesn't at least make the Super Bowl, the season is a is a waste. This is a waste of a season, right? They came in with all the hype on Josh Allen, with all the hype on this team. They went toe to toe. They went toe to toe with Kansas City last year in the playoffs, but they lost. So. Again, if they don't, if they make the playoffs and don't even minimum make it to the Super Bowl, I guess we can say AFC Championship game since they haven't been there yet. This season is is what's what's the point? I just don't I just don't like my quarterback taking so many hits over the entire season, especially since there's an extra game now. I I'm just not a fan of it. So, um, but again, I say moral victory because I think Miami came out and showed they've already beaten Buffalo once this year. And now they showed that they can play with the best, one of the best defenses, one of the best offenses in the league. They they showed they're that caliber of team after two really poor showings against good defenses, right? And everyone's talking about two is really not that good. He only beat up on bad teams. Blah blah blah. Well, let's not forget when two was hurt, Miami lost to bad teams. So, so I think. Um, this is a big game for them. I know they lost it, and that sucks. They had a chance to win it, and like you said, the corner on that getting that pass interference bailed Buffalo out, um, yep. and bailed Josh Allen out again because that was a terrible throw once again. But um, yeah, I I think this is a good moral victory for Miami because they came out, they put up twenty nine points in terrible conditions against a good defense, and I think after all the talk about. They can't play against good defenses. They can't do this. They can't do that. I think this is a good, a good loss. If you can say that there is a good loss in the NFL, like, I think this this proved this should have proved to the team that they can play with anyone in the league because they were step for step with Buffalo pretty much the entire game in bad weather. So again, I'm not a huge moral victories guys, but if Miami goes into the playoffs and wins a game or two in the playoffs, I think they could make the Super Bowl. Um, if they get some of their corners back healthy, because Xavier Howard does just not does not look fully healthy to me. We saw him, you know, get burned up in the Cincinnati game a few weeks back because of a hamstring injury, and I just he doesn't look like his normal lockdown self to me. Um, you know, no. Chubb hasn't really made a big impact like I thought he would coming over in the trade. Um, so maybe once he gets more comfortable um, in the in the defensive scheme or or just hopefully he starts to make an impact because that's why they brought him in, right? They they were hoping that he could kind of do what Von Miller was doing for Buffalo before he got hurt. Like, Chubb just hasn't really shown up this year for Miami. Uh, I love that you gave a shout-out to Phillips. He's been balling the last few weeks. Um, yeah, so, and Christian Wilkins, just a beast as well on that defensive line. Um, the secondary for Miami needs to get better because I feel like Miami's front four 
is is really good. Um, I feel like they just need help on that back end because, again, anytime Josh Allen scrambled and bought a little bit more time, he was finding open receivers. So, um, But with Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell and even Mostert, Mostert was balling in this game. They kind of went away from him at the end, but he had he had a really good game as well. But with Waddle and Tyreek Hill on the outside, this team is dangerous. All right, moving into the Sunday games, we're going to start with Philly at Chicago, where Philadelphia escaped Chicago 25-20. to But the biggest news out of this game is that Jalen Hurts apparently injured his shoulder. Um, shocker with how much quarterback dives and, and runs they called for him. And this is my fear of running your quarterback a lot and taking big hits. Um, again, it's unstoppable. I don't think the Jalen Hurts quarterback dive from the one yard line at the goal line has been stopped this entire season. That's why he has so many rushing touchdowns. It's unstoppable. But now he has a hurt shoulder. And guess what you probably can't do with a hurt shoulder? Throw the ball very well. Uh, and he is your quarterback. So, um, again, just like Josh Allen having a hurt elbow, I'm not a fan of my quarterback taking a bunch of hits over the course of the season. Um Justin Fields continues to show me, and I'm very happy about this because I was not high on him coming out of Ohio State because, one, I don't like Ohio State. I will blatantly say that, um, just like Julius's disdain for North Carolina. Um, yeah. And, two, uh, I know there's this bias against Ohio State quarterbacks, and I know Julius doesn't like that, but, I mean, if you look back at the history of Ohio State quarterbacks, most of them have not been good coming into the NFL. Um Again, I think some of that has to do with the teams they're drafted to and who they're put around and how they're tried to be developed. But Justin Fields is showing, at least for me, he's the best young quarterback in the game. Uh, and you know, and I and I, I'm I'm and Jalen Hurts. I love Jalen Hurts. I'm the one that hyped him up before the preseason. I'm just saying, out of like the last two year draft class, since it's only Justin Fields' second year. Um, out of the last two years, I think Justin Fields, and that includes Trevor Lawrence, that includes all these other guys, Justin Fields to me is showing, you know, pieces and, 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 and flashes of greatness, of a generational talent. Um, I don't think people realize how bad the team is around him. Offensive line is putrid. Uh, they have Leatherwood on there. I know Joyce will love this. They have Leatherwood starting on their offensive line, who the Raiders of all teams cut. So that's how bad their offensive line is. Um, I'm a big David Montgomery fan and Herbert fan. So, you know, I like their running back duo. I know Herbert's hurt right now. Um, their their wide receiver core is, again, I'm, I like Claypool. He's not a wide receiver one to me. I like Mooney. He's not a wide receiver no, one no. to me. Um Ew. Uh, I, I love Mooney as my wide receiver, too, or in the slot. Don't get me wrong. I think Mooney is a good, solid wide receiver. He's not a number one, though, just like Claypool's not a number one. Um, and I like Cole Komet as well. But again, Justin Fields doesn't even have time to get through progressions. And he had one of the most spectacular runs I've ever seen from a running back and or quarterback position. It got called back because he stepped out of bounds. But even with him stepping out of bounds, it is by far one of the greatest runs I've ever seen. Um, and Justin Fields is kind of getting to that category for me of like Patrick Mahomes, where if he's playing, I have to watch him because something spectacular is going to happen. Um, again, Chicago's team is just not good. They, they've traded away all their good players. <laughs> they have a bunch of young guys starting. 
um, and I know you're going to like this. Uh, I love Brisker. He's come in, and he's playing really, really high, really good quality football, which is another good young piece for this team. But I'm just hoping that in the draft coming up this year, Chicago either drafts an offensive lineman or a wide receiver. Because can if you could just imagine Justin Fields on the Jets, like I just feel like that team might be winning the AFC East right now. So I just hope because they have a good a lot of good young pieces on defense and, and they got Justin Fields on offense right now and they do have some pieces like I mentioned with Montgomery and Cole Komet. I, I I hope they build around Justin Fields because as you can see Baltimore hasn't really built around Lamar Jackson and when he goes out this offense becomes stagnant. Don't be wrong, I like Mark Andrews. And unless your name is Travis Kelsey, you can't build your offense around a tight end. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Um, and so I just I just really, really hope that Chicago builds around Justin Fields. Now I'll move on to Philly. Again, they won the game. They are going to get the number one seed in the NFC most likely. Um, A.J. Brown showed out again. Devontae Smith had some crazy catches in this game again, which is great. Philly, you have Miles Sanders. Let me SOS this. Let me let me do let me whatever message I need to say to these teams that have good running backs. Buffalo, Devin Singletary, and you drafted James Cook. Give them the ball. Especially when it's snowing. Philadelphia, you have Miles Sanders. I like Gainwell as a as a scat back and coming out and catching. Run with Miles Sanders. Look at what you did last week with him. Just keep doing it. I don't understand. It's not even like he's averaging two yards of carry in the game. The man's averaging over five. Just give him the ball. And that is my Philadelphia message for the day. So on paper, this game featured two complete mismatches. And both of those mismatches manifested themselves. One, you talked about the Chicago offensive line. Chicago's offensive line versus Philadelphia's defensive front is a complete mismatch. Those two units shouldn't be allowed on the field at the same time. And so, shockingly, that sorry Chicago offensive line gives up two sacks to Hassan Reddick, two sacks to Josh Sweat, and two sacks to Javon Argrave. Now, all of those guys are having really good years. They're going to have even better years if they face offensive lines like Chicago more often. So now with the Eagles, Hassan Reddick has double-digit sacks. Javon Hargrave from the interior of the defensive line has double-digit sacks. And Josh Sweat is sitting at nine and a half sacks. So if Sweat gets another half sack, and I like his chances of doing so, the Eagles become the first team in eight years to have three different players with 10 or more sacks. And they have an opportunity to do that with a couple games to spare. So it shows how dominant that Philadelphia pass rush is right now. And again, there was just no chance. Philadelphia pass rush versus Chicago offensive line, no chance. The other mismatch on paper, Philadelphia's receivers against the Chicago secondary. And I will say, Jalen Johnson had a nice game overall. He really accepted the role of trying to go at A.J. Brown. And 
did a decent job holding his own. He didn't have a great game, but he did a decent job holding his own. But uh, unfortunately, Johnson did get hurt later on in the game at some type of abdomen injury. But A.J. Brown goes off and has the best game of his career, 181 yards. It's the third time this year A.J. Brown's gone over 150 yards. So, again, it speaks to how much impact he's having to the Eagles, that he can have these explosive performances. And even with A.J. Brown going off like that, Devontae Smith still had 120 yards, or over 120 yards in his own right. So both mismatches that the Eagles came in on the advantageous side of, they were able to exploit in this game. Now, let's get to Jalen Hurts. First of all, I'll give Jalen Hurts credit because Jalen Hurts threw a couple interceptions in this game. They weren't particularly good throws either. Those were his first interceptions in the last five games. That could have got him rattled. Both of them were first half interceptions. He's still a young quarterback. It's it's tough to remember that sometimes. Only his second year as a starter. So you could say, you know, okay, he's facing some adversity for the first time in a while. Let's see how he responds. And he responded well. He threw the ball well in this game and uh, had a nice bounce-back effort after he threw those two interceptions. So I'll give Hurts credit there. I have talked about Hurts' usage as a runner and how concerning it was. And, he, you know, here we are now. So Hurts in this game led the Eagles with 17 rush attempts. In the Patches point, why? You have a good running back in Miles Sanders, a good, healthy running back in Miles Sanders. Let him do what he's supposed to do. He's running the football. This was the third time in the last five games, third time in the last five games, that Jalen Hurts has run the ball at least 16 times. Now, why is that a significant number? Josh Allen, who Patrick does not like how much he runs the ball, Josh Allen has not run the ball 16 times in a game this year. Lamar Jackson, who people want to call a running back, has had 16 rushing attempts three times since the beginning of the 2021 season. So there is nobody at the quarterback position running the ball nearly as much as Jalen Hurts. And it makes no sense, considering the personnel the Eagles have, for Jalen Hurts to be running that much. Jalen Hurts ran the ball in this game more than Justin Fields did. And when you watch, Justin Fields is running because he has to run for his life every single play. Justin Fields is running because it's not like there's anybody out there to throw the ball to. If you give the ball to Bayless Jones Jr., he'll just fumble it. He had his third loss fumble of the season in this game, and that's somebody who barely touches the ball. But he fumbles as a punt returner, fumbles as a receiver, fumbles on these uh, jet sweeps. So Justin Fields has nobody to throw the ball to. He has an offensive line that can't protect him, so Justin Fields has to run. Jalen Hurts has a great offensive line and great weapons to throw to. There's no need for him to run the ball this much. Now, I don't mind you picking your spots. Okay, the one touchdown run that Hurts had in this game that wasn't a rugby scrum, that was a 20-yard run where he was untouched. Chicago came with a safety blitz and left no defenders in the middle of the field. You run Jalen Hurts there, I'm fine with that because there was literally no risk to running. But all these power runs up the middle, all these runs where Hurts is running directly into contact, he's running directly at front seven defenders, eventually he's going to get hurt. And fortunately, this shoulder sprain doesn't sound too bad. The fact that he's saying he's, he's uncertain for the next game is a, is a good sign because that sounds like somebody that even if he misses a game or two will be back 
certainly in time for when the games start to really matter again for the Eagles. But, you know, at some point, you got to stop this. At some point, you got to protect Jalen Hurts to some degree. I get that he's a strong, tough runner. I get that he squats 8 million pounds. I get all of that. You have other guys who can run the football. I like Kenneth Gainwell as a running back. I, th- I think he should be getting 10 or 12 carries a game. You know, he reminds me of a, a Tony Pollard type of running back where, you know, maybe you don't want to feed him 25 times a game, but he can handle more of a workload than he's getting. And of course, both of those being Memphis guys, similar style, no no surprise there. But yeah, give give these guys the ball. Give Miles Sanders the ball. Give Kenneth Gainwell the ball. Give Boston Scott a few carries. He's been effective this year. You don't have to rely this much on Jalen Hurts for this team. So I just want to throw that out there. As for the Bears, again, that secondary didn't have much of a chance against these Eagles receivers. Uh, I I mentioned before that I like Kyler Gordon. I like him coming out the draft. He got an interception and a fumble recovery in this game. So he took advantage of opportunities when they presented themselves. Uh, again, the play has to become more even from this secondary. And again, it is a young secondary. You talked about Jaquan Brisker. And so between he and Gordon, you got a couple of rookies starting back there. But a lot of inexperience in the secondary for the Bears. So you hope that it gets better uh, as those guys get more experience. But uh, this game wasn't a surprise as far as how much the Chicago defense struggled. That said, the Bears hung in there this game. Uh, there was never a time where they were getting completely blown out of this game. So I give them credit for that. And the last thing I want to say is I just want to, you know, send condolences to Tevin Jenkins. Not sure exactly what happened to him, but he suffered a neck injury in this game that looked uh, pretty scary. It was one of those plays where uh, they didn't even want to show the replay on the broadcast because not because not it was graphic looking or anything, but just because it was that serious and, you know, just a lot of, a lot of unknowns there with that injury. So Tevin Jenkins has an injury history. And this just being the latest, but uh, he was carted off the field. It looked like a pretty serious situation and just uh, all the best to him moving forward. And of course, from a football perspective, a line that isn't good at all now loses Tevin Jenkins. So that line gets worse. But the concern here is for Tevin Jenkins, the person over Tevin Jenkins, the Bears offensive lineman. So hope he's okay. Next game we'll get into the New Orleans Saints. Knocking off the Atlanta Falcons 21 to 18. And of course, the New Orleans Saints won this game because why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they? Considering how the NFC South is gone, they had an opportunity here, if you're the Falcons, to catch the Buccaneers. And I use that term loosely. But of course, by the Saints winning this game, Tampa was able to retain sole possession of first place in this division. So for that reason alone, of course, the Saints won this game. What, what a sorry, sorry division the NFC South has been this year. And this game just epitomized that. A couple weeks ago, we had talked about, you know, how Arthur Smith had come out and said we're evaluating positions in Atlanta. Well, we know what that means. That means new quarterback. You don't, you don't openly announce that you're evaluating any other position. You just make the change. So we said a couple weeks ago, Desmond Ritter's debut was going to be here. And sure enough, it was. Ritter, how did Ritter's debut go? Terribly. <laughs> Terribly. Desmond Ritter looked like he just wasn't ready. I mean, <laughs> he, looked, he looked bad. And he got away with some mistakes in this game. He had a couple of plays where he, he should have thrown some interceptions. He just escaped this game somehow without throwing an interception. But a lot of that's just, you know, the Saints missing opportunities. But 
for the most part, a very conservative game plan for the Falcons. Not shocking. Uh, it's a real one-dimensional approach to this game for Atlanta. Uh, anytime you run the ball the way the Falcons did, the Falcons ran for 231 yards as a team in this game, led by Tyler Algier, who had a career day as a rookie. Uh, he went off 439 yards and had some really explosive runs in the second half. And Normally, Algier is kind of the tough grinder kind of runner, but he had some explosive runs in the second half of this game. But normally, when you run the ball the way the Falcons did, you expect to score more than 18 points, especially against the Saints defense that's okay. And the fact that they couldn't do it just speaks to not being able to throw the football. I have been begging for Drake London to get more involved in the offense, and he did have seven catches for 70 yards. But the rest of the team had six catches for 27 yards. And you, you can't maintain offense. In today's NFL, you got to be able to move the ball through the air a little bit. And so for Ritter to come out there and have a, under 100 yards in his debut as a passer, you, you don't like to see that. But again, you suspected that a team that was already run heavy all year long in the Atlanta Falcons, that they would be that much more run heavy uh, with a rookie quarterback making his first start. Uh, you can't feel good yet about the Falcons. Uh, you, you can't feel good yet if you're the Falcons about Desmond Ritter. But, again, it's his first start. I'll cut him a break. You'd like to see him look better coming out of a bye week than this. But, you know, there's, there's still a few more starts at the end of the year. This is an evaluation process. I think the Falcons will be using this time to decide if they want to take a quarterback next year or if they want to give Ritter another year. So I expect Ritter to get more opportunity. But uh, this this wasn't. This wasn't promising, but again, first start, I don't want to be too hard on, on Ritter, especially because there isn't a lot in the passing game outside of Drake London in Atlanta right now with uh, Kyle Pitts being hurt. Uh, for the Saints, Rashid Shaheed. I mean, he, he just he's just a playmaker, and I, I have to give him credit. I mean, this is a guy who came out of Weber State. I certainly didn't know much of anything about him. I mean, I knew he was a, a nice return man at Weber State, but I uh, didn't see – this coming out <laughs> from him this year. Um, he caught a touchdown pass in this game off of a nicely thrown ball uh, from Taysom Hill, but at the same time, also a terrible, terrible safety, uh, safe, uh, terrible play by the safety, Richie Grant. And again, this is one of those things why the safety position is so important because if you mess up like Richie Grant did on that play, now you're giving up long touchdowns. But uh, Shahid has three touchdowns in his rookie year. All three touchdowns have been longer than 40 yards. So he's he's becoming a big time playmaker. He's averaging about 22 yards a catch. He's averaging about 16 yards a, a per rushing attempt. So I mean, just an explosive playmaker and quickly becoming one of the more fun young guys to watch. And he's actually starting to get a little more involved in the offense the last few weeks. So Rashid Shahid is certainly a name to keep in mind. You already like what you see out of Chris Olave, and now if you can add Shahid as you know, a big play threat, a downfield guy to what looks like a smooth, I don't even want to call him a possession receiver because that would do him a disservice, but just an all-around receiver, Chris Olave. If you can have Olave and Shahid doing what they do and uh, both taking a step forward next year, now you got a nice duo in New Orleans and you need to work from there. I do have to blow the whistle on the Saints for this. David Johnson had a red zone fumble in this game. And I'm blowing the whistle because, again, it's 2022. Why in 2022 
is David Johnson getting meaningful carries? What are we doing? You can't find anybody. All these young running backs. I mean, I, I could find somebody who played in the USFL or something. David Johnson? What are you doing? You know, it's one thing for the Saints to insist on having an over-the-hill Mark Ingram on the roster because at least there's some sentimental value there. At least you can look back at Mark Ingram and say, you know what, we have some good memories together with the Saints and Mark Ingram. What is the deal with bringing David Johnson? So I got to blow the whistle on even having him on your roster, let alone giving him an opportunity to run the ball to Red Top. That turned out the way you think it, you would think it would in 2022. So this game, as, as terrible as it was at times, it was entertaining. It was a nice back-and-forth close game. It came down to the last possession, which is all you want. So many of these games this, this week came down to the last possession. Desmond Ritter ends up with one of his best passes in the game, another pass, of course, to Drake London, because it's London a bust in this passing game right now. And London fumbles. And the fumble was forced by Justin Evans, playing the most important position in football, playmaking safety. But it's just a bummer to see. You know, Drake London, who was having a good game, Drake London, who, again, is the guy I've been calling on the Falcons to get more involved in the offense, has an opportunity to make the make a play at the end of the game, makes the play initially, but then gives the ball up. And it, it, just, it just hate to see that for him because the Falcons were driving. They looked like they were going to at least tie the game on that possession. But London fumbles. The defense predictably can't get a stop to get the ball back, and the game's over. So this is one of those games, you know, if you're a bad team, you find a way to lose. When you have two bad teams, somebody's really got to find a way to lose, and the Falcons did that. So now both of these teams are 5-9, and nine, yet both of these teams, the Falcons and the Saints, are one game back in the division, as sad as that is. And I'll say it again, and I'll say it again later, if nobody in the NFC South has a winning record, please ban this team from the front. Please, please ban this division from the playoffs. You, you, There's still time to make that rule change. I'm sorry. Get them out of here because it, it's just a shame. It's a shame that you have other teams sitting at 7-7, seven and 8-6, seven, and six, have no shot at the division, and yet these 5-9 and nine teams are literally a game back. That, that's, I just can't overstate how sorry this division is, and it just showed up in this game. Even though it was a competitive game, it was just another reminder of how bad the NFC South is. Yeah, I'm not going to talk too much about this game. Julius touched on most of the points for this game. There's not much else to talk about. Ritter looked terrible. Uh, not surprising. If he was a rookie that was ready to go, people would have drafted him in the first or second round, um, and he would have been starting over Marcus Mariota week one. So, I mean, this it wasn't a surprising result to me. It's not like New Orleans has a bad defense. I know they haven't played up to their standards this year. Um and as Julia said, Atlanta did what they do. They they ran all over this team, but they couldn't get touchdowns. They had to settle for field goals, and when you do that, you normally lose games. Um, yeah, Drake London uh, definitely has to have ball security at the top of his list. His, that has to be a priority, especially when you're running a slant route into the middle of the field. Um, made the catch. Uh, didn't look like he made it clean, though, and that's kind of why he got stripped. Um, I mean, I would have to go back and watch the replay to, to, to see, but... Uh, from just watching it live when it happened, it looked like he didn't catch it completely clean, um, and that's why the guy was able to get his arm in there and punch it out before he could secure it completely into his chest, um, which just sucks, though, because like Joy said, they were driving, and at minimum you think they're going to 
having a chance to kick a game-tying field goal. Um, Andy Dalton continues to start for this team. I don't know why, uh, because they don't even use him. He had like 90 passing yards in the first quarter, and then they were just like, okay, he ended with 151. So through three quarters, like he only, that means he only passed for 60 more yards through three quarters. And it's not like Atlanta's running out there with a potent defense. Um, it just doesn't make sense to me. It's very confusing. Um, Taysom Hill is the one who threw the pass to Rashid Shaheed. So, uh, again, just, just a confusing way that they're going to, that they're using their, their guys. So, um, they're, I don't know what happened to Alvin Kamara this year. He's has been pretty much non-existent. Um, so just, just an interesting, just a weird offense that New Orleans is running. And yeah, everyone pretty much lost in the NFC South besides New Orleans, who was the only four and eight team. So a four and nine team, I'm sorry. So now you have a six and eight team in Tampa and then five and nine, five and nine, five and nine. So um <sighs> unless Tampa wins out, which I don't think is gonna happen, unless Tampa Bay wins out, that means a losing a losing record because you can't be five hundred anymore unless you have a tie. I'm looking at you, Giants. Um, you are going to have a winning or a losing record. So, um, it most likely a team with a losing record is going to make the playoffs, which I'm with Julius on this. The NFL can do this. You don't, divisions are outdated anyway. You used to have divisions because of travel, like how it was hard to travel. So you wanted to play teams twice that were close to you. So then, you know, fans could travel, the team could travel easier, et cetera, et cetera. Um, just they're outdated now, you know. Just take the top eight teams from the from the NF, from the conferences. I feel like that's just an easier way to do it. But it is what it is. Um, anyway, this game was not an exciting game by any means. They had a big play here and there, but other than that, it it's just two bad teams seeing who who won't lose, and it ended up being New Orleans winning. So now, like I said, six and eight, five nine, five nine, five and nine. Everyone's still alive. Um, I I don't want to see any team in the playoffs from from this division though. I did. They all look terrible, and we'll talk about uh, the other teams coming up in a few few seconds. So we'll segue that game right into the Pittsburgh at Carolina Panthers, where somehow, some way, the Panthers held their own destiny in their hands, as you know the media likes to say. And sure enough, in Carolina Panther and Sam Darnold fashion, they come out and lose to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, Pittsburgh defense, when healthy, looks decent. Uh, again, they played the Panthers, so I'm not putting too much stock in this game. But TJ Watt with another sack. Um, he has like eight in like four games <laughs> this year. It's just an, it's insane his production level when he's when he's on the field. Um, DJ Watt, aka Derek Watt, he didn't want to go by DJ for some reason. Uh, got a first down in this game from the fullback position. Let's go, DJ or Derek. Um, you know, Pittsburgh, Deontay Johnson made there's a lot of blow the whistles in this game. I'm just gonna say that, listeners, there's a lot of blow the whistles in this game. Deontay Johnson flexing after catching a first down. And getting in people's faces to get a, uh, a, it wasn't even a touchdown. This man got a first down. Like, what are we doing here? And I understand you're excited. I understand, you know, you're pumped up, and that's great. 
no need to flex on the on the people uh, to get a, a penalty, a 15-yarder at that. Um, and then Marcus Allen, most of you probably – I'm not talking about the Raiders' Marcus Allen. I'm talking about the Steelers' Marcus Allen. Um, for having such a great game uh, – name for NFL, um, you know, just goes over to the bench after his team gets a sack, which would – and gets a 15-yard penalty and gives him a first down to continue the drive. It, it was fourth down. The man's coming out for punt coverage. And he just walks into the huddle of the Panthers. What are you doing? I don't... It's I just don't understand. I hope Mike Tomlin doesn't play this man the rest of the year just for that. It, it just doesn't make any sense. And in a week where there were a lot of things that made no sense... Uh, this one's up there. It, it doesn't take the cake because we'll talk about that in Julius's game. But this just doesn't. This just makes no sense to me. I just don't understand. I mean, he's lucky this didn't cost his team the victory because Carolina's inept on offense, and and their running game got bottled up. I also don't know why they kept running. I, you and I have talked about Deontay Foreman, but he was getting bottled up all game. I would have gone with Hubbard because um, at least he was getting getting some positive yards. Deontay Foreman got pretty much bottled up in this game. So I don't know why Carolina kept trying to run with him. But anyway, Pittsburgh comes out with a W. Uh, Tomlin's still fighting for, you know, not having a losing record. He's up to 6-8. and eight. So all they got to do is win out Julius, and he doesn't have a losing record. And next up is your Raiders. So Raiders, Ravens, Browns. I don't think it's, I don't think it's doable. I don't see him winning those three games. Uh, but if Lamar Jackson's not back, and if he can get past the Raiders, it's doable. Not likely, but it is doable. Um, but yeah, so this game, again, just two bad teams playing each other. So it wasn't very exciting football. Um, and lots of blow the whistles in this game. Buddy, you have two starting quarterbacks in this game who are both former top three overall picks. And yet, going into this game, you felt like neither one of these quarterbacks were going to do anything. And so you get to the game, and neither one of these quarterbacks do anything. So Mitchell Trubisky and Sam Donald, again, both top three picks. Both picked over quarterbacks you'd much rather have over these guys. Combined for 31 completions in this game. Fitting. Fitting. So because of that, this game was always going to come down to who could run the ball better. That was going to be it. Because you know these inept quarterbacks are going to cancel each other out. Who's going to run the ball better? Uh, you alluded to it, Patrick. Deontay Foreman had 10 carries for nine yards. And Chuba Hubbard only had 10 yards rushing himself. So Carolina couldn't run the ball and really didn't stick to it. I, I thought they gave up on the run a little early, considering how their team is structured right now. The Steelers didn't run the ball all that great either, quite frankly. They just ran the ball better than Carolina did. Uh, Najee Harris had a nice touchdown where he ran with some attitude and kind of tried to really stiff arm somebody in the end zone, kind of missed with it, but I uh, still got the touchdown. Jalen Warren got a rushing touchdown this game as well. So the Steelers just did a better job on the ground than the Panthers did. And that really was as simple as it get. That like the Steelers ran the ball better, so they won the game. Sam Donald had one impressive drive this game. The second drive of the game, Sam Donald had 87 yards passing on a 14-play drive. He got three passes to DJ Moore, which is impressive because 
last week, DJ Moore didn't catch a single pass from Sam Darnold. So it seemed like on that drive, Darnold really went to make amends to DJ Moore. So he got him the ball a few times, threw a touchdown pass to him, an impressive catch by Moore, and an impressive throw as well. I got to give Darnold that. But the rest of the game, just absolutely nothing from Sam Darnold, as you'd expect, and very little from this Panthers offense overall. So uh, once again, the Steelers' defense gets the job done. Like you said, when they've got a healthy Watt, I mean, that, that's the main thing is to have a healthy Watt. Uh, they, they've had other injuries on defense, but when you have Watt healthy, and of course you have Minka Fitzpatrick healthy because you need somebody like that at the most important position of football, now you have a chance. And uh, Alex Highsmith got involved as a pass rusher in this game. And again, if it, I said, you know, Highsmith stepped up in Watt's absence. And now if you can have those two getting off at the same time on that pass rush, now you've got a formidable defense for the Steelers, or at least the pieces to start building a formidable defense. There's still some holes in that Steelers defense, but, you know, you got the pass rush and the, and the safety position taken care of, uh, then you're overall in a good position. Uh, George Pickens, he had another highlight catch going down the sidelines, was able to high point on the football and get his feet in bounds. It seems like every week he makes a play like that. So his his superb, his elite catch to highlight ratio is still intact. It seems like he only catches a couple passes a game, but when he does, they are noteworthy. And Pickens also recovered the onside fumble, uh, the onside kick to pretty much end the game. Uh and afterwards, he got a little testy, started pushing around some people, actually knocked a ref down on his way up. And if you remember, a few weeks back, uh, George Pickens actually got ejected for a late hit on Tyler Boyd on an onside kick. So George Pickens and onside kicks is starting to become must-see TV because you never know who Pickens is going to go after in any situations. But uh, Pickens did seal the game with an onside recovery. And uh, that was it. So, like you said, the Steelers just find a way to, once again, win a game. And, you know, I'm with you. I don't think Tomlin is likely to run the table, but it's not impossible. There are three teams that have shown that they can be beaten left on Pittsburgh's schedule. You can take it a week at a time. Uh, Steelers, Raiders, uh, in the 50-year anniversary of the Immaculate Reception, as if 90% of your viewing audience cares about that. But uh, that's how the game is being advertised. Uh, should be an interesting game. Uh, if you're Carolina, now you got to face a Lions team that has really found its stride and finding different ways to win now. Uh, and yet, again, Carolina, even after a performance like this, where once again we saw if they can't move the ball to the ground, but they've got nothing that they can do, they are still in the division hunt, as sad as that is. To the Detroit Lions, who all of a sudden can't lose. The Lions, with a 20-17 to win, over the New York Jets. And I got to give the Lions credit. I had briefly mentioned this a couple minutes ago. The Lions all year long have had pressure on the offense. If the offense didn't win the game, and I mean really win the game, they didn't have a chance. I didn't think that the Lions could win a game in which they would have scored 20 points. I didn't think the Lions could, certainly didn't think the Lions could win a game well, they only come away with one offensive touchdown. But in this game, they found a way to do it. Now, this game started with Patrick's favorite thing, a failed fourth and goal conversion from the Lions. <laughs> Instead of taking the, the points to, to begin the game. But 
by failing on fourth down against the Jets offense that struggles a lot. They set up a long field for the Jets. The Jets go three and out, which means now you got to punt from the back of your own end zone. Brain man comes up with a short punt, a short and low punt. The two things you can't have, you know, short and high you can get away with because that's not going to be returnable. Long and low, at least you give your coverage a chance to get down there and then maybe you can get a bounce or something. But short and low is, is not good. And so Khalif Raymond feels the punt from Brain man on the jet side of midfield and runs it back for a 46-yard touchdown. So it all, it all worked out in the end. You don't get the fourth and goal conversion, but you're fourth and three and out, then get the short punt return for a touchdown. So maybe Dan Campbell is a genius and we should stop questioning everything he does as far as his, uh, we'll call it aggressive decision-making goes. Uh, I noticed that the Jets in this game were more aggressive with Zach Wilson. They weren't more aggressive in terms of the number of times they threw it because they still didn't throw the ball 50 times like they do with Mike White and Joe Flacco, but they were more aggressive in the, the actual calls. And there was some good. Uh, Sam uh, Zach Wilson had a nice uh, across-the-field pass downfield to C.J. Uzama for the first of two C.J. Uzama touchdowns. A lot of tight ends scoring touchdowns. A lot of tight ends who probably weren't on fantasy teams scoring touchdowns this week. This week, That was another theme around the league. And Uzama at the top of the list. But that was an impressive throw uh, from Wilson to go uh, across the field to make that throw. Uh, but then there was some bad with Wilson as well including just a terrible interception to Jerry Jacobs right on the sidelines, just a play that he telegraphed and Jacobs was able to come over and make an easy interception and uh, return the ball inside the New York 20 to set up a field goal. So, like I said, the Lions offense really didn't do anything. You talk about 20 points. They needed that interception to set up a field goal. They needed the punt return touchdown. The offense just did not get going for Detroit this game. Uh, DeAndre Swift looked good in limited carries, but once again, DeAndre Swift had limited carries. So without him running the ball more than eight times, they just struggled in an unusual fashion because this Lions offense has been pretty explosive, but they just couldn't get those big plays going. But that's it. The defense comes through and makes plays. And then finally on that last drive, and the Lions offense got going a little bit. But now at the end of the game, the Lions faced another fourth and one at midfield. So, of course, we're going for it. In this case, they kind of had to. And just nobody, nobody picked up Brock Wright. He was able to pretend he was blocking and leak along the left side of the field and then just take off. I mean, Brock Wright showed pretty impressive speed for a tight end on that play, but I mean, I don't know what happened to the Jets' defense, but they were so misaligned that there was nobody in position to make any type of a play on Brock Wright until he was right near the goal line. So nice play designed by the Lions, but uh, the Jets, there was there was something blown there because they certainly just didn't see it coming. They did not account for Brock Wright at all than they paid for. Uh, the last possession of the game was just completely blown, completely mismanaged. And you can blame Robert Sala. I tend to put more of the blame on him than Zach Wilson, since Wilson's an inexperienced quarterback who's being jerked in and out of the starting lineup. You can't walk away from this game with a timeout. And to blow, to, to blow it by not calling timeouts, there was a 10-yard catch that Garrett Wilson had on the final drive. The Jets didn't call a timeout. They took 22 seconds to get the next playoff. So now you're getting to the end of the game and you've got timeouts, but what you don't have is time. 
<laughs> that the whole point of timeouts is to preserve time. So now you have the miraculous uh, fourth and 18 conversion to Elijah Moore, who seemed to have no clue that the Jets had timeouts because instead of catching the ball and going down, he runs the wrong way and then tries to break a tackle, which almost ran the, the rest of the time off the clock. Fortunately, despite his own efforts, Elijah Moore went down with a second left. But now you have a second left with the timeout. And that's after you called a timeout on that play. So you had two timeouts before that play. You use one because Moore gets tackled with one second left. You're stuck with one that you never used. And you have to kick a 58-yard field goal. And not surprisingly, it's way off the mark. So there's a completely mismanaged last possession from the Jets cost in this game. Again, these are the kind of mistakes you make when you're a losing team. And the Jets can continue to not have that offensive identity. Again, they're missing it without Brees Hall. Uh, Zonovan Knight, this was his worst game uh, since being uh, propelled into a larger role on the offense. And again, without that, you had, again, a sporadic uh, Zach Wilson performance, but just too uneven for the Jets to, to come away with this win. So now, all of a sudden, a game that at the beginning of the season looked like a joke is a crucial game on Thursday between the Jaguars and the Jets. That becomes a very interesting game. Both teams need it for, for different reasons. Uh, Jacksonville's certainly still in position within the division to do something. We'll talk about that more later. But uh, for the Jets, uh, obviously they're going to be chasing a wild card. Then This is almost must-win for them because there is no chance uh, for them to get back in the division. So this was a big loss for the Jets, a huge blow to their playoff chances. Uh, just the kind of game you don't win when you're not a good team. As for the Lions, again, they have picked it up as of late, and they've got to be encouraged now that they don't that they can see that they can beat somebody without Jared Goff having to have an almost perfect game. Right? They can beat somebody without everybody on this offense having to go off, or they can beat somebody without having to score 35 or 40 points. So that's encouraging. Uh, again, the Lions get the Panthers next week, and again, if the Lions. Play some defense again. If they play some defense like they did in this game, if the Lions show up defensively against Carolina, all of a sudden we could be looking at next week with Detroit having a winning record this far into the season. It's it was unfathomable a couple months ago, but here the Lions are, and again, just a, to me, an encouraging win, even though it was against the Jets team that certainly has some holes offensively. No one will ever convince me that having 30-plus fourth down tries is ever a good thing in a season. And they're not even, we're not even done with the season. And that's how many the Detroit Lions have. Um, I get being aggressive and I get all that stuff, but Dan Campbell going for it on fourth down has cost him more games than it has won. Now, it won this game uh, for him, but it definitely cost his team in the first Minnesota Vikings uh, meeting. So, anyway, um, Detroit. Again, six and one in their last seven. They started the season off one and six. Um, it's amazing that they're seven and seven. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the season, you and I were talking about, oh, they're playing pretty well, and and they finally turned the corner. And then seven weeks in, we we're like, oh my god, the same Lions. And now we're back to, are they finally starting to turn a corner? Is Dan Campbell finally starting to get these guys back on the same page? Um, this game would have come down to that fourth and one, which was either a great offensive play call or a terrible defensive play call. Like you said, I think it was a little bit of both. I think the I think the scheme was really well put together on offense, and I think, like you said, the Jets just blew the coverage because um, 
that tight end just came right wide open and just again ran 35 yards for a touchdown un, untouched it's not even like he had a juke or break any tackles the man just caught the ball on a two-yard route and just ran it 35 yards for a touchdown but um the lions are looking like the smartest people in the room by trading away hawkinson hawkinson has underperformed with the vikings and look the lions are still getting some production out of their tight end room so very interesting. Um, I guess they weren't going to pay the man anyway, so we might as well get something for him because I, that's the only reason I can think they traded him away. Now that they're and now look now they're they're right in the thick of the playoff hunt. So normally you want to keep your playmakers, but they just it hasn't looked that bad for them since trading him. Um, I am mad at Jared Goff because he underthrew Jameson Williams in this game where he would have had his second touchdown of his career on his second catch of his career. I was I was real excited for it. Yeah. Underthrew him, and so gave the safety time to catch back up to him. But uh, once he is fully healthy, I am really excited for this wide receiver core because they're still playing Khalif Raymond and they're still playing uh, Josh Reynolds. But once Jameson Williams is fully healthy and up to speed, Amon Ross St. Brown, DJ Chark, and Jameson Williams, your three-headed monster, is a pretty good wide receiver trio. Um, to, again, to go along with DeAndre Swift, and Jamal Williams, who had another touchdown, but it was called back for holding. He would have had his 15th touchdown on the season if it wasn't called back for holding. Um, just this offensive group is is has some really good pieces around it. So now Detroit has to decide, especially if they make the playoffs, do you stay with Jared Goff, the guy who got you to the playoffs, or do you move on from him? Because that's going to be the question surrounding this team. And they don't have to make a decision right away because they still have him under contract for two years, and it's at very expensive money. Um, but you know, they're going to have to decide sooner rather than later. If that's the guy you kind of build this team around. Um, I'm excited. I, I kind of want Detroit to make the playoffs. I, I'd rather see them than the commanders or the Seahawks, honestly, at this point, just because their offense can be that potent and their defense is starting to turn the corner because the defense that was holding them back at the beginning of the year is, is now starting to pick up uh, Kuda looking like a, like a first-round pick like he was, like starting to play at that level. Uh, we talked about Aiden Hutchinson for multiple weeks in a row now. Um, that defense is really starting to starting to come, come through for him. Zach Wilson in this game wasn't a complete train wreck like he normally is when he plays, but as I told Julius when I was watching this game, I feel like every time he drops back and the first read isn't open – he kind of just says F it and throws it up. Like I feel like he – and maybe it's just a young quarterback thing. Maybe it's just a in college I could do whatever I wanted type of thing. I don't know what it is, but I feel like young quarterbacks just don't eat a bad play anymore, right? Like that's what we talk about with good quarterbacks and like how they can just be like, all right, let's move on from this play. It's not going to work out. Like young quarterbacks I feel like just throw the ball up even if their guy is triple covered. And Garrett Wilson came down with some catches, and Elijah Moore came down with some catches in this game that made Zach Wilson look better. His stats look better than what he was. But he literally just throws it up in the air. And being an Eli Manning fan, because I'm a Giants fan, and I think he's a better quarterback than people give him credit for, uh, I used to I used to appreciate that for him 15 years ago. I used to appreciate, like, oh, he's giving our guy a chance. And then people, look how many interceptions he throws, blah, blah. Now I feel like quarterbacks these days are like, oh, he's giving this guy a chance. And I'm just like, where was this 15 years ago? It makes me so mad. <laughs> Because he used to get beat up all the time in the media um, for how many interceptions he's thrown. And, like, most of the ones, I, from what I remember watching, were 
Did he make some bad throws? Yes, every quarterback does. But most of them were either tipped off his receiver's hands or Eli was throwing a 50-50 ball and his guy just didn't catch it. So, um, But Zach Wilson literally, I feel like, just drops back. And if his first read isn't open, he's just like, F it. One of my guys is down there somewhere and just throws it. So, um, But at the end of the day, yes, that was terrible time management like Julius already talked about at the end. But Zach Wilson still got them within field goal range. So this is what you pay the kickers to do. He, they need to make that field It was a long field goal, but... The offense did what he needed to do to get into field goal range. And it had plenty of leg. He just missed it. Wide right. Wide left. So he just missed it. Um, and, and, and and he had plenty of leg on it. But again, he, he just missed it. So um, unfortunately, unfortunately for the Jets, they didn't win this one. And they've dropped a bunch in a row now. Detroit uh, is, is, is on fire right now. So it's going to be a very interesting playoff run for the wild card in both the AFC and NFC. So I'm excited to kind of see how this shakes out over the next few weeks. All right, moving on to another game that had an exciting finish. Uh, the Dallas Cowboys at the Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, Jacksonville wins this game 40 to 34. And before I hear any more bad talking about Dak Prescott, that interception at the end of the game was not his fault. It hit his guy right in the hands hit him right in the chest as a professional wide receiver, you got to make that catch. It wasn't too far out in front. It wasn't thrown behind him. It hit him right in the chest. Hit him right in the numbers. So you got to make that catch. But that's not what lost this game for Dallas. I mean, that is technically what lost the game for Dallas because they had a pick six. <laughs> and so, yes, that is what made them lose the game. But uh, once again, terrible coaching and, and clock management in another game this week. Um in a game where Travis Etienne had a bad fumble, Trevor Lawrence had a turnover um, to Deron Bland. It was just a bad, bad pass on that one as well. Uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars showed that they have grit, shows that they have a backbone, and came back and just kept fighting back in this game. Um, this highly touted, highly vaunted Dallas defense gave up 40 points, and I know one of those was a pick six, so... Um, they gave up 34 points. Like, I just, this is why people don't believe in the Cowboys when it comes to playoff time, because you have little hiccups like these, you, you see kinks in the armor, you, you know, can you trust this team down the stretch in a game that you feel like you should have just walked away with? And if you looked at the box score, you're like, man, they definitely were, it, they, they just end up losing it. And, and you know, it it just it blows your mind sometimes because because you know Zay Jones came out and had a huge game. Christian Kirk had a pretty decent game. Again, Etienne had a hundred yards rushing, but he had a really costly fumble. Um, but Trevor Lawrence and the Jags didn't stop fighting. They and they got the field goal to go into overtime, and then again the pick six to close it out. And a big big win for Jacksonville. Because with the Titans losing, they're only one game back now. This was a huge... Jacksonville needed this win more than Dallas because Dallas clinched even with losing. But this was a huge win for Jacksonville. And I said it earlier when I said I'd rather see the Lions in the playoffs than the Seahawks or the Commanders. Um, I would rather see Jacksonville in than the Titans. So I'm hoping Jacksonville wins and then gets in. So they're one game back of the Titans right now. It's going to be very interesting to see... Again, I'm very excited because this is the time of year where all these things happen and every game kind of matters more than at the right at the beginning of the season. So, um, huge game for Jacksonville. Again, 
I think the head coach and I think the team, it just shows how culture does matter because kind of like we were talking about with Detroit, they were one and six to start the season. Everyone wrote them off. Now they're in the thick of the playoff hunt because of, I feel like Dan Campbell's like leadership. And yes, I don't like it, but the four going for it all the time on fourth down, um, you know, it just builds a culture and, and Detroit's starting to win some of these close games. Um, so is Jacksonville. They had some tough losses at the beginning of the season and Julius and I talked about it. They're like, oh, they're playing hard, but the same old Jacksonville Jaguars playing hard, same old Jacksonville Jaguars. And in this game, they were playing hard and they actually won the game. So, um, and I think, and I think a lot of that has, I think a lot of that has to do with, again, the culture that's being built there. They're getting out from under the Urban Meyer debacle. And it just, it's amazing to see when a coach has confidence and, and understands what he's doing uh, what a team can do in high-pressure situations. Uh, yeah, you see, you touched on it, and the main thing I took away from this game was the fact that the Jaguars, a team that had been bad for a long time, downtrodden for a long time, was able to deal with some adversity. You know, they started to game off with, like you said, a bad turnover, able to deal with adversity, fall behind to a good Cowboys team. Fall well behind, fall three scores behind. To come back and win this game, this is the kind of win that could mean more to this team than just a win on paper, so to speak. Because now, for the first time in years, this team believes legitimately we can come back if we're down. We can beat good football teams even if we don't get off to a great start. So when you look at Dallas, everything with the way they wanted to early on, they score a couple of quick touchdowns. And this game looked like it could have been a beatdown coming. The Cowboys looked like a team that wanted to make a statement and say, oh, you know, we didn't play our best necessarily against Houston. Let's show what we can really do in this game. And all of a sudden, you know, here comes the Jaguars. And if you're Dallas, you're concerned for a couple of reasons. One, you're concerned anytime you blow a lead this big. But you're also concerned because, you know, I talked about it last week, Chris Moore, a career special teamer for the most part, was able to light this defense up. Had a career day against him. Amari Rogers had a career day against this defense. Now, here you are a week later. You know, if you're the secondary, you've got that on your radar. We've given up a lot of yards to guys who, quite frankly, don't have much of a track record in the NFL. Now you're going to get some better receiver core in the Jaguars. Zay Jones, over 100 yards with three touchdowns. And when the Jaguars needed it the most, a field goal to tie the game at the end of regulation, who they go to? Zay Jones. So you can't stop the go-to guy once again. And Zay Jones is a very good receiver. I wish he was still on the Raiders. But he's not at that elite level of receiver. So once again, you're getting burned by second and third level receivers. Christian Kirk also had a really nice game in this game as well. And Kirk has been a player this year who's probably exceeded expectations, but at the same time, he's had his best games in the most advantageous matchups. When he goes up against good secondaries, Kirk hasn't really performed all that well. So the fact that, again, both of these guys continue to roast your secondary it's a concern for Dallas moving forward because you're going to be facing better receiver duos starting next week than what you've been facing these last few weeks. And once again, again, I'm not sitting there telling you Anthony Brown is a shutdown guy or anything like that. 
What I am telling you is that in two weeks without Anthony Brown, this secondary is getting cooked. So the results are what they are. And this is not how you want your secondary to look when you've got A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith on the horizon. So Dallas really has to fix some things there. Now, as for Dak Prescott, like you said, there's a lot of talk surrounding him right now. Not so much good. And I'm also not going to blame him for that last interception. That's a ball that hit Noah Brown in the hands. That's the kind of catch that Noah Brown was making regularly when Cooper Rush was a starting quarterback. But for whatever reason, uh, Noah Brown doesn't make that catch for Prescott. And Brown did catch a couple of touchdowns in this game, so I don't want to bash him too much. But you, you can't drop that ball and knock it up in the air. But at the same time, this is the fourth time in the last six games that Dak Prescott has thrown multiple interceptions. And again, some of that might not be his fault. Might have a couple of what we like to call unearned interceptions mixed in there. But Prescott has to be better with protecting the football. The first interception that Prescott threw in this game was a momentum shifter. That really got the Jaguars back in the game and feeling good about themselves. And that's the type of interception you can't have your quarterback making. That was just a terrible throw. Throw directly to Rayshon Jenkins. But, uh, yeah, the second interception, that's just a blunder by Noah Brown. Um, and just just a lot of concerns about the uh, Cowboys overall. Like I said, you have Prescott with the turnovers. That has to be addressed. Uh, the running game was not all that efficient in this game and did not get more efficient as the game went on, like you'd like to see from a team that uh, takes pride in running the football the way that the Cowboys do. And again, overall defensively, just not a good showing from the Cowboys. So uh, some concerns about this game, certainly for Dallas. And again, they've got Philadelphia next week. And I, I don't feel like this was a look-ahead kind of game because the, the way the Cowboys started off this game. They looked like a team that was intent on trying to win this game and was not looking ahead, but they just looked like they got beat. And like again, once the Jaguars were able to capture some momentum, the Cowboys weren't able to stem the tide and you know, make the kind of plays to recapture that momentum that they had early in the game. Uh, I do have to give Riley Patterson credit. That wasn't, you know, a surefire, easy field goal at the end of regulation. So, again, I, I'm okay with bashing kickers when they miss, certainly when they talk trash or demand things and then miss. So I'll have to give credit where it's due, and that was a good kick from Riley Patterson. Uh, again, that was not a gimme type of kick, so, you know, I'll give him credit there. Uh, but I buried the headline with this one. This was the ultimate playmaking safety being the most important position. This is this was exhibit A for that. Rayshon Jenkins. I mean, he dominated this game. 18 tackles. He was all over the place in this game. Had both the interceptions on Dak Prescott. Uh, that second interception that won the game for Jacksonville, that was a tough play. I mean, that Noah Brown, again, you can't knock the ball up in the air if you're Noah Brown. But that was quick reflexes from Rayshon Jenkins to be ready for that ball to come out. So to make that catch and then running back for a touchdown. That was highly impressive. But when you have a safety giving that much of a dominating effort, this is the result you can have. So uh, shout-out to Rayshon Jenkins. He was absolutely the MVP of this game. Uh, Trevor Lawrence is just starting to, like you say, he's starting to emerge. He's starting to look like what we were promised coming out of Clemson. He's, he's not there yet, but you see signs. You're seeing production. You're seeing flashes here and there where you say, okay, this looks like, the guy who deserved to be, you know, the most hyped prospect of the last decade, basically. So Lawrence is coming around. And the one thing that's helped him in the last two games, Trevor Lawrence has attempted 84 passes 
and he's only been sacked once. So the Jaguars' offensive line has been huge uh, in protecting Trevor Lawrence, and that's been a big reason for him to take a step forward as well. Now you have Cam Robinson, who got hurt in this game. He's out for the season. So you lose a big piece there. And, uh, and Robinson, who was really, really taken off as an all-around offensive lineman. I thought he'd be a good run blocker. I wasn't sure about him in pass protection, but he's turned out to be better than I expected. So now you're losing a big piece in Cam Robinson. Can the Jaguars sustain keeping Trevor Lawrence upright and, of course, keeping the run blocking going uh, like they did in this game where Travis Etienne was able to run for over 100 yards? Uh, so watching that left tackle position is going to be critical for Jacksonville moving forward. Uh, as for Dallas, uh, late Vander Esch was hurt in this game. That's that's the one sentence you've been hoping to not hear all year. Uh, it seemed like a neck injury at first, which, again, is what you really don't want to hear about late Vander Esch. But now it's being reported that's more of a shoulder issue. So hopefully it's a short-term thing uh, because Vander Esch has really had a bounce-back year and been a big, big part of Dallas uh, having a good defensive run, uh, at least up until the last week or two. So you need him healthy. But uh, yeah, all the best to him there. Again, Jacksonville, they, they play the Jets on Thursday. That's a crucial, crucial game. Uh, Jacksonville has put themselves in position to make an, in a, to make an AFC South run because that division's bad. And uh, we'll talk about the Titans later. But Jacksonville's putting themselves back in the running. Uh, as for Dallas, they take on Philadelphia next week. And I know Jalen Hurts may or may not play in that game, but this Cowboys defense, remember I said last week, if they played the way they played against Houston, they would lose to Jacksonville. I said that last week. And, you know, you got the result you got this week. So Dallas really has to take a step forward. And even if Jalen Hurts doesn't play next week, Dallas needs to be better than this to beat Philadelphia, even with a backup quarterback. The Cowboys have some things to figure out. And uh, they're starting to run low on time to figure those things out. They're still a good team. Don't get me wrong. But they got to fix some of these coverage issues, and they've got to protect the football better, starting with the quarterback. Next, we'll get into the Kansas City Chiefs as they are able to escape Houston with a 30-24 to overtime win over the Texans. Uh, so Kansas City clinches the AFC West with this game. The AFC West has become the Kansas City Chiefs Invitational. The Chiefs have won the division seven straight times. Of course, this was supposed to be the year where there was supposed to be some fierce competition for the division, but you know, here we are with three games to spare, and the Chiefs have already locked the division away. So uh, congratulations to Kansas City for that, but uh, the rest of the division still got some work to do to catch up with this team. Now going into this game, you have the Texans place Damian Pierce on injured reserve ending his season. Damian Pierce has been pretty much the only good thing about the Texans offense this year. Uh, Derek Stingley Jr. had already been out, but the Houston Texans placed him on the injured reserve before this game as well. Uh, you had Nico Collins still out with a foot injury. You had Brandon Cook still out because he's still not feeling it. And so Houston looked like a team that didn't have much to play for, and quite frankly, they don't. But this, again, speaks to, and I talked about this before, but it speaks to the fact that organizations tank, but players don't. So even though the front office is tanking by you know, having players deactivated who could help this team win, because I'm not sure how injured all these guys are. But, you know, the, the front office, the best thing that can happen to them is the Texans lose out in the number one pick. But these players, whoever they're throwing out there, they're still going to go out there and play hard, play physical. They, they play some tough football in this game. I mean, the, the Texans had a couple of hits in this game. Mario Addison crushed Isaiah Pacheco on one hit and forced a fumble. 
And Traymond Smith, uh, same guy who got his first two career interceptions against Dallas last week, Traymond Smith had a massive, massive hit on Juju Smith-Schuster where he lifted him off the ground and slammed him to create a turnover. So the Texans are still coming out here these last couple of weeks, and they've shown you we're still going to play. I mean, the players, I have to give them a lot of credit because they have not uh, catch, uh, checked out on the season. They're still coming out here and competing. So I got to give them credit. But, again, on a game like this, good teams find a way to win, bad teams find a way to lose. And so when you get to overtime, you know, Houston has the ball. They might be in position, position to win. And Davis Mills, who had a pretty decent game in this game for, for his standards based on, again, what he has around him. Uh, he ends up fumbling, uh, fumble forced by Frank Clark, who again one of the big playmakers up front for the Chiefs. Uh, Willie Gay did a great job of recovering that fumble uh, and basically stealing it from between the legs of Dario Gumboale. And now you set up a Jarek McKinnon game-winning touchdown run. So a couple of things stood out to me as far as the Chiefs go. One, you know, I talked last week about how Patrick Mahomes can get bored sometimes when the game is getting a little too easy. He'll start taking risks for no reason. He'll throw careless interceptions. And, you know, people were getting on him. And I heard all this talk about, oh, y'all don't get on Mahomes throwing interceptions the way you would other quarterbacks. Well, again, you got to take into context with those interceptions that are being thrown. If they're being thrown in a 27 to nothing game, it doesn't bother me that much. It's just, a, again, a mental lapse because you're just bored. But in this game, this game, it was a reminder of, okay, when I'm locked in the entire time, because Houston, had the lead in this game a couple times. This was not a game where Patrick Mahomes could afford to be careless and to be reckless. And you saw what Mahomes did in this game. Mahomes was nearly flawless in this game when you watched the way he threw the football. In this game, when Mahomes targeted either Travis Kelsey, Juju Smith-Schuster, or Jarek McKinnon, <clears throat> any of those three receivers, Mahomes was 28 for 28 throwing the football to those receivers. 28 for 28 throwing the ball to Kelsey, Smith-Schuster, and McKinnon. That's a reflection of how locked in Mahomes was for this game, understanding we can't play around because those guys came to play. So it's just a reminder that the best quarterback in the league is going to show up when he has to. And, and again, you can say, oh, well, it's against a one-win Texas team, but again, a Texas team that has shown well in recent weeks. And Mahomes... Again, he, he, his completion percentage for the game would have been over 90%. Again, completion percentage is an overrated stat. But, again, it's all about context with completion percentage. Are you throwing a bunch of two-yard dump-offs dump or are you throwing the ball down the field? Considering the level of difficulty for some of these Mahomes throws, the fact that he would have had over 90% completion if Justin Watson just doesn't drop a 47-yard pass is, is mind-blowing. It just, again, speaks to how perfect Mahomes was playing when his team needed him to. Uh, the other story is Jarek McKinnon. Uh, Jarek McKinnon for the second week in a row went over 120 yards from scrimmage. And if they're going to get that kind of production out of out of him, because Jarek McKinnon, who also, by the way, in the last two games, has four total touchdowns, including the game-winning touchdowns in this game, also had a two-point conversion in this game, also has 15 receptions over the last two games, so he's making an impact. Jarek McKinnon... Skill or talent has never been a question with him. It's just been durability. And now he's in a position with Kansas City where he doesn't have to be the running back to try to take 20 carries or anything like that. And them keeping him healthy, keeping him fresh, is paying huge dividends down the stretch for the Chiefs. And if he can keep this up, 
this offense becomes very dangerous with the way Mahomes is playing. And again, the fact that Pacheco has proven that he can be the between the tackles running back and take some of the, those hits off of McKinnon, keep him fresh, keep him healthy. But if this backfield is going to produce the way it is right now, this Chiefs offense becomes very, very difficult to deal with. So that's the number one thing I'm looking at with them moving forward. Uh, so now you have Kansas City. Like I said, they've won the division. The, the goals for the Chiefs now extend beyond the division. Can they get that number one seed? Can they catch Buffalo? You know, that that's where they're looking at now. So now they uh, look forward to taking on a real Seahawks team, another defense that's been uh, pretty iffy uh, for the most part. Again, the Seahawks are an opportunistic defense, but uh, from one play to the next, one series to the next, not a great defense. So there's opportunity again for the Chiefs to have an, another explosive day offensively and move forward uh, in their goal to try to get the best seed they can get going into the postseason. Uh, as for Houston, they're just playing out the string. But again, I'll give the Texans credit. They are playing competitive football against good teams. They've got the text, the, the Titans next, and they've had a, a rough history facing Derrick Henry. But you know, if the, if the Texans keep playing football like this, that Houston Tennessee game could be a lot more interesting than you would have thought a couple a uh, couple of months ago. And so I just I just appreciate the effort that I'm seeing from the Texans players because they're they're playing very much undermanned on paper, but they are giving quite an effort on the field. And in their case, I am willing to give ball victories because, again, the front office does not want to win. But a lot of these players are earning playing time either on this team or somebody else's team next year based on how competitive they've been against teams that have, have, that have much, much better rosters. Yeah, for me, this is just uh, Houston not trying to get uh, fined for, for um, tanking, uh, you know, they played hard, made it seem like they were trying to win, and then overtime hits, and they're like, all right, we're just going to get the ball up. You know, a nice little easy easy score for <laughs> Kansas City. Um, no, in all seriousness, uh, Houston definitely played hard. Um, it's two weeks in a row. They're playing two playoff teams. Um, they're playing them tough. They're playing them difficult, especially without Damian Pierce. You know, that's really impressive. Um, Pacheco fumbled again in this game. Uh, that's something to keep an eye out on. Um, Travis Kelsey made a pretty dumb, you know, penalty where the guy kind of pushed on his shoulders when he was trying to get up a little bit and he gets in his face and pushes him and keeps going with it afterwards. Um, we got a penalty for that. Um, so you kind of see the Chiefs kind of when they don't get out in front right away and then they, they don't kind of like get up on you right away, they kind of get a little frustrated, uh, especially Kelsey's been bottled up the last couple of weeks. I mean, he got 100 yards this game, but not – kind of the Travis Kelsey you're used to seeing getting in the end zone, things like that. So, um, but yeah, Jarek McKinnon definitely uh, balling out recently for, for Kansas City. Um, I don't think Clyde Edwards-Hilaire will have a job when he gets back healthy, um, which sucks because I don't think he did anything to lose it, personally. He was having a good start to the season. Um, but the way McKinnon and Pacheco are running right now and catching, I feel like you you got to just keep rolling with the hot hand because McKinnon, who's never been a, it's never been a factor of if he has the talent. It's been a factor of if he could stay healthy. Um, looks like he is kind of hitting his full potential right now. Um, yeah, you know, just another win for Kansas City, another playoff appearance for Kansas City, and that's pretty much what they they're playing for. So 
it'll be interesting to, interesting to see how they finish out the season. Are they going to go for the one seed and the and the and the bye week? Are they going to keep playing competitively, or are they going to kind of coax here? So that's going to be the interesting thing to see from Kansas City is kind of do they still play with a sense of urgency? Um, and we'll see kind of the next few weeks how that plays out, especially if they have an injury scare or if they don't want. Patrick, because you gotta have Patrick Mahomes for the playoffs. You can't lose them in the last three weeks of the season. So it was be interesting to see Houston again playing for the number one pick, but they're playing hard. Um, Could have won this game, didn't because again, bad teams find ways to lose. But um, you know, I I did not think I didn't think it was gonna be as close of a game as it was, and it came it came out to be a lot closer than I think anyone thought it would be. So Kansas City just seems to have issues playing the AFC South since they also lost to the Colts this year. So. And they and the Titans played them hard at, at home, and so uh, it's just been a weird season for Kansas City. They, they they've had some tough games against AFC South opponents. All right, moving on to the afternoon games now. Arizona at Denver in a game that no one really wanted to watch because it was just two backup quarterbacks going at it uh, for two teams that really aren't doing anything else this year. Denver wins it twenty four to fifteen. Um. Yeah, Latavius Murray is having a rejuvenation in Denver. It's it's, it's interesting to see. Um, same with Marlon Mack. Got another touchdown randomly in this game. So two running backs that everyone ran off in their careers, and now they're getting touchdowns and getting a 130-yard rushing game. So just a very interesting uh, you know, thing that has happened out there in Denver. Um, Arizona looked bad uh, without Kyler Murray. Uh, not surprised they were playing with Trace McSorley out there. Um, Colt McCoy, you know, didn't didn't play, so he got hurt, and then so McSorley had to come in and looked like a third string quarterback uh, that doesn't get much playing time uh, for a team that's not very good. Uh, you know, it was twenty four fifteen. This was more of just who could run the ball the best, and we know that Arizona's run game is not that great. Um, and Denver's defense was good enough to win the game for him. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and dive too much into this game. Again, there's not much to talk about. Two teams that really aren't going anywhere. Uh, Brett Rippon, and like I said, it ended up being Trace McSorley finishing out the game at quarterback. Um, Jerry Judy had an okay game again. Uh, again, pretty much the number one option for Brett Rippon out there. I think, again, it was more about the running games and just trying to, again, the beginning of this game, there's like four field goals in a row. So for, for each team. So again, it was just a kind of a boring game. And then uh, Denver just kind of won this with their run game and obviously leaned on their defense a lot, uh, which isn't hard to do. Like I said, when you're going up against not so stellar of quarterback play and, and someone who didn't get has, hasn't gotten much NFL reps with McSorley. Yeah. Ironically, this was supposed to be how it, looked for Denver all season. Play great defense, run the ball extremely well, have the quarterback make a few throws, win the game. Yet the reality is Denver's blueprint worked in this game because, like you said, Arizona's down to their third-string quarterback and they're a team that's completely flailing. So this is what it's supposed to look like for Denver all year, but just hasn't been the case. You talked about Latavius Murray. Season high, 130 yards rushing in this game and a touchdown. This is the fifth different team that Latavius Murray has had a 120-yard game with. So just because of the type of career he's had, Latavius Murray 
never been one to find a permanent home in the NFL, but every time he pops up, he's able to have at least one random good game everywhere he goes. And this was his random good game for his latest team. So he keeps just enough in the tank to keep reemerging wherever he's needed. And uh, he was been needed in Denver this year. And it uh, paid dividends for them in this game. Again, this is one of those games where you're not sure how much either team wants to win because losing actually helps both teams more than winning in this case. But as far as who played better on the field, definitely the Broncos. And of course, when you look at the quarterback matchup, Brett Rippon versus Colt McCoy, and then like like Patrick said, Brett Rippon ultimately against Trace McSorley, it was going to always come down to who ran the ball better. Denver ran the ball better, they won the game. Uh, that said, J.J. Watt had a great game for Arizona. Three sacks in this game. There were easy sacks as well. I mean, I, there were just some plays where uh, it just seemed like the Broncos lost where J.J. Watt was, and I just don't understand, even at this point in J.J. Watt's career, how you can ever be in a situation where you don't know where J.J. Watt is or you don't have your offense, like like your priority. The number one thing you're focused on as an offense, where's J.J. Watt? Let's get some extra bodies on him. Uh, so Watt had a tremendous game in this game. Uh, he also had a forced fumble where he just basically ran past Brett Rippin and just smacked the ball out of his hand. And yes, that does count as a sack. So uh, that was one of three sacks for Watt. Uh, Watt also had a batted pass in this game. Uh, another one of those signature J.J. Watt type things, knocking passes down to the line of scrimmage. So uh, Watt had a big game, earned some incentives in his contract with his performance in this game. So uh, good for him. He certainly didn't come to Arizona to be a part of a team that is sitting at 4-10 and 10 at this stage of the season. But, um, you know, he still continues to perform when his body allows for him to. Uh, Trace McSorley he threw two interceptions in 15 pass attempts. And keep in mind that McSorley came into the game with a 6-3 lead. Now, 6-3 lead is certainly far from insurmountable, but at the same time, it means that you don't have to ride the quarterback, you know, to try to win the game. So I wasn't sure why they used McSorley the way they did. Now, keep in mind, McSorley has been with the Ravens and is now with the Cardinals. Both of those teams use mobile quarterbacks, Lamar Jackson, Kyler Murray. They bring in a guy like Trace McSorley because he's supposed to be able to run with the football well and sort of kind of a little bit replicate the kind of things Jackson and Murray can do with their legs. Yet in this game, I didn't see Trace McSorley really run the ball much at all or even attempt to run it much at all. And, and again, maybe, maybe it's because he saw Colt McCoy get concussed and said, I don't want any parts of that. But you know, it was disappointing to see McSorley not be used as a runner and be terrible as a passer. And that's just not what you sign up for. Again, unless, like Patrick said, unless you're, you're really sold on trying to lose these games and you don't care how blatant it is. You don't worry about getting fined or anything like that. Uh, so that was disappointing. Uh, combined, Colt McCoy and Trace McSorley threw three interceptions. Two of those interceptions were made by Justin Simmons, playing the most important position in football, playmaking safety. And the second Simmons interception set up the touchdown to put Denver up 24-9, which more or less sealed the game. Uh, the Cardinals did manage to come back and score a touchdown to make it 24-15. to I am the person who says, don't go for two unless you, until you have to. And to me, you kick the extra point, you make it 24 to 16. Maybe you get lucky. You go down the field with the hope that we can still score another touchdown and convert a two-point conversion to tie the game. But once you miss a two-point conversion, 
with a nine-point deficit, you know it's over. So on the two-point conversion, I thought Kareem Jackson got away with a pass interference call uh, against DeAndre Hopkins. Certainly not the only controversial non-pass interference call of this weekend, but one that went under the radar because, again, you have two teams that are irrelevant right now for competitive purposes. But uh, once you miss that two-point conversion, the game's over. And so that was the case, and uh, we move on. So now you, you have Denver at 4-10. and 10. They face the Rams next week. That's going to be another one of those games where the team that loses benefits more than the team that wins. And you've got Arizona facing Tampa Bay, and maybe we'll see the NFC South have a team win a game against somebody not to be NFC South for a change. Um, but that's to be determined. And that's that's enough for these teams because yeah, both these teams are just ready to get this season over with at this point. Next, we'll get into my Las Vegas Raiders, who won a game over the New England Patriots 30 to 24. On a normal weekend, this would have been the craziest game of the weekend by far. But this was just such a crazy week, crazy week of football that this game just fit right into the theme of just crazy games, crazy. Uh, changes in momentum, crazy endings, all of that this weekend. So, if you look at the first half of this game, everything went right for the Raiders. Everything did. Uh, the defense comes up with a defensive stand in a goal-to-go situation. That's something we haven't seen from the Raiders very often this year. So, hold the Patriots to a field goal. Darren Waller caught a touchdown. Darren Waller actually played in the game. Darren Waller actually finished the game without pulling his hamstring. That went well for the Raiders. Matt Collins at the end of the first half comes up with a tough touchdown catch uh, with four seconds left. Makes the catch right at the goal line, a low throw uh, that he's able to scoop up off the blade, off the grass, uh, off the turf to get a touchdown. Uh, not literally off the turf, but uh, a low throw that was right near the turf, and he was able to snag that for a touchdown. And, hey, Derek Carr executing in the red zone. We actually got to see some of that in the first half of this game. And so with all of that, the Raiders take a 17-3 lead into halftime. And unfortunately, because of what the Raiders have been through this year, having already blown not one, not two, not three, but four double-digit leads in the second half, you still couldn't feel comfortable as a Raiders fan going into halftime with a 17-3 lead against a Patriots offense that looked more of one for the entire first half. And sure enough, you come out in the second half and you do what? You throw a pick six on the screen pass. Just too predictable. Too easy to see coming. I saw it as easily as Kyle Duggar did. Duggar takes the interception back to the house. Playing the most important position in football. Playmaking safety. And now, because of Kyle Duggar, we got a game again. And so the Patriots end up ultimately tying the game up on a Ramondre Stevenson touchdown run. And Stevenson had, you know, certainly his best game. Uh, not surprisingly against this Raiders defense. And so now a game that you thought you had, you don't have. And ultimately the Raiders fall behind in this game, 24-17. And now I'm thinking, of course, this, this game's over. You didn't, you didn't give it up, 21 straight points. This is not the type of team that has shown this year that they can regain the momentum, like I talked about with Dallas and Jacksonville earlier. Can you regain the momentum once it slips away from you? Normally the answer for the Raiders has been no all year long. And yet in this game, Derek Carr came through in the final drive. I got to give him credit. He converted a fourth and 10 to Matt Collins to keep a, keep that last drive alive. 
ends up throwing a nice ball to Keelan Cole Sr. for a touchdown, I'm still not sure. And I mean, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know if Keelan Cole actually got both of his feet in bounds. I know he got the first one in. That second foot, I haven't seen an angle yet that definitively shows that that second foot was in bounds. The good thing for Keelan Cole is that the tips of his cleats were black. So it fit right in with that black end zone in Vegas. And I think that made the difference in the call being kept a touchdown. So, you know, I'll take it as a Raiders fan. It was very close. Like I said, I don't know. But that was one of those plays where had they ruled it incomplete, it would have stayed incomplete. But because they ruled it a touchdown, it remains a touchdown. And all of a sudden, the Raiders can come through and delivered a touchdown when they absolutely needed to. And again, I'm as hard on Derek Carr as anybody, so I'll give him credit for coming up with that last drop. So now we get into overtime. You get you get into not overtime because this game should have gone overtime. I assume we were going to overtime after that last touchdown. And you know, it goes without saying that the whistle has to be blown in the last play of this game. So the Patriots could have taken a knee, decided not to. Ramondre Stevenson busts through, gets a nice long run, but he's going to be stopped with no time left on the clock, and the game's going to go to overtime. Stevenson pitches it back to Jacoby Myers. Okay, cool. You might have a little of this going. I hate to do this to my NC State brother. But I have no clue what Jacoby Myers was thinking. Myers runs like seven or eight yards backwards and then tries to throw halfway across the field and about 20 yards back to Matt Jones. Now, I'm always looking at risk versus reward in any situation. The best-case scenario is Chandler Jones isn't there and Mac Jones catches the ball. What in the world, what the hell is Mac Jones supposed to do from there? He can't run. <laughs> like, what? You think he's going to go 50 yards? And then, there is no one with speed that far back. All the speed guys are up the field. And you throw it 20 yards backwards to a guy who can't run. So the best-case scenario was getting the quarterback hit for no reason. However, the worst-case scenario took place, which is Chandler Jones is there. Chandler Jones catches that stupid lateral. Chandler Jones face plants McCorkle Jones into the ground, and he's gone to win this game for the Raiders. That, I would have a hard time thinking of a more stupid ending to a game than that. And I say that as a Raiders fan. You know, my team benefited from that play, and that's just completely stupid. And again, I love Jacoby Myers. You know, he he was a good player at NC State. He's got limited experience at quarterback. He's, you know, been used on like trick plays in New England because of his ability to throw the football. He threw a perfect spiral right to Chandler Jones. I just don't understand what he was thinking or what he thought the benefit of that play would be. So you have that ending to a game. And, you know, I saw some Ramon J. Stevenson uh, take some blame after the game and even own up to it at his press conference. I'm, I'm upset that that even happened because what was Ramon J. Stevenson supposed to do? Again, the Patriots had a choice to take the knee. They decided to hand the ball off. And if you hand the ball off, you're telling the guy to try to do something. All Ramon J. Stevenson did was try to make a play. He didn't do anything wrong. Because I, mean, I saw plenty of people say, oh, he should have just went down. Or he could have just not gotten the ball. <laughs> if you're going to give me the ball, I'm going to try to do something. So I have no problem with anything Stevenson did. Now, ironically enough, Stevenson broke Chandler Jones' tackle to get that run kicked off. 
And by breaking that Chandler Jones tackle, he left Chandler Jones in a position to be right in the spot where Jacoby Myers ended up lateraling the ball back. So I have a problem with the play call itself because, again, just take the knee and go to overtime. But I have a bigger problem with Jacoby Myers because I just – the risk versus reward makes that one of the stupidest plays ever. Uh, the one other thing I will say about this game is McCorkle, who, again, McCorkle Jones was a guy who most reasonable people weren't that high on last year. But the media kept trying to sell you that he's the best quarterback and he's the smartest quarterback in this draft and all this other – he's the most pro-ready and all this other nonsense. And last year, because McCorkle made the playoffs, all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, see, we told you, we told you. Where are y'all at now? Where are all these McCorkle truthers at now? Does he still look like the best quarterback of last year's class? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think it's particularly close when you compare him to Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields, who should have been the top two picks in the draft anyway last year. Yeah, how's, how's that going for you right now? McCorkle in this game averaged under four yards a pass, despite the fact that Ramon J. Stevenson ran all over the Raiders' defense. If you can't succeed as a quarterback, when your running back is having that much success on the ground, it's problematic. And I get that the Patriots don't have the world's greatest weapons, but they got better weapons than some of these teams out here. They got decent receivers. You got to be able to get the ball to them, and especially in this type of game against that type of defense. So McCorkle has got a long way to go uh, to prove himself worthy of all the hype and all the love he got last year. As for the Raiders, again, a miracle win puts you in position where there's faint hopes still in the wild card. Mathematically, I still say the Raiders season is over. I'm not going to get ahead of myself just because as, as much as this win might feel like it should count for more, it's just one win as far as the playoff standings go. But you have a chance against Pittsburgh. You win that game. You're in a slightly better position. The Steelers win that game. They're in a slightly better position. They're both in the same spot. So that's more or less an elimination game. And one of those teams will get eliminated. I think both of those teams will ultimately be eliminated. But one will be pretty much for sure uh, next weekend. And as for the Patriots, you blow this game. Now you've got to face a hot Cincinnati team. And all of a sudden, your wild card hopes don't look nearly as good as they did going into this game against the Raiders. Yeah, Ramondre Stevenson had 172 rushing yards. Um, most of the time, if you run for that many yards, you're winning the game. That's that's that You're normally controlling the time of possession. You're normally controlling most facets of the game. Um, in a day where Josh Jacobs didn't show up, um, Las Vegas gets the W. And after a <clears throat> terrible loss last week to the Rams... They get an amazing win against New England. I, this Las Vegas team is is an oxymoron. It's an anomaly. You just don't understand what you're going to get from them because um, if you told Julius before the game that this game would be won on a 20-yard pitchback, a defensive end is going to get it and run over a quarterback for a touchdown, he would have thought that that would have been New England, not Vegas. If you if he had to bet money on it, he'd be like, "Oh, that's how the Vegas loses," because that's just what we do. Um, no question. And to see a team like New England, which who's coached by Bill Belichick, blah blah blah. Um, yeah, it was. I mean, I enjoyed that all the guys took accountability. Like even Mac Jones was like, "I should have tackled him right there." Um, you know, it's on me. And then Jacoby Myers was like, "Oh, I just tried to make a play." And then Ramondre Stevenson, same thing. I'm glad they're all being accountable, but 
and then, you know, Bill Belichick, we got to have better situational football. Then kneel the ball. Kneel, kneel the ball then if you need better situational football. There's, if you can't get into field goal range anyway, if the clock's going to run out with no matter what play you do, what what was the point? I'm with Joyce on that one. What was the point? Just go to play for overtime. But I don't know if they thought Las Vegas had momentum or whatnot because of that Keelan Cole touchdown. I don't I don't know what was going through their minds, but it was just terrible play calling. Mac Jones does not look like he is a NFL caliber quarterback. Uh, I'm with Joyce. I know people jumped on the hype train. Uh, last year because they made the playoffs, but let's remember he threw three passes in a game one time last year. Um, yeah, the defense is why that team was winning. And the run game with Damian Harrison, Andre Stevenson. Um, shocker. Um, and I'm glad Joyce brought up the draft class because I kind of wanted I touched on this earlier and with the Chicago where I said, can you imagine Justin Fields on the New York Jets team? And the reason I brought that up is um, and I'm glad Julius brought this up about Mac Jones going last and people saying he's the least ready because it's just funny how this seems to always happen in the NFL draft. And randomly during the summer when people are wearing shorts and not playing football, a random white quarterback comes out of nowhere to get drafted high. And people could be like, oh, you just always say this stuff. Blah, blah. No, it's it's literally historical facts. Like Y'all can go back and look at this. No one was talking about Mitchell Trubisky. It was... Deshaun Watson was the consensus number one quarterback coming out of that draft class. And who hopped him? Mitchell Trubisky. Now, you could say Chicago would be in a much better position with Deshaun Watson, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to talk about all the off-field stuff. I'm talking about strictly from a football standpoint. If they drafted Deshaun Watson, maybe they win a Super Bowl. They made the playoffs with Trubisky, and the offense didn't do nothing, really. It was all defense. They had a stellar defense in Chicago for many years. Okay, now let's talk about last last year. Going into that draft, the number one and number two pick for two straight years was Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields. Seriously, go look it up. Sports Illustrated, ESPN. Everyone knew Trevor Lawrence was going to go number one. And literally every person for two straight years... Justin Fields is going to be the second quarterback taken. Justin Fields is going to be second. Then out of nowhere, some kid from BYU, because he can throw the ball 75 yards in the air in shorts, <laughs> gets drafted second. For what? Did anyone know Zach Wilson before that? Before the draft? Like, I don't want to hear... I'm just saying. It just, it's just frustrating. And then that's why I said, can you imagine Justin Fields on the Jets, because that team, I think, would be so much more dangerous, especially with all the pieces that they have gathered around that offense and the defense, obviously. Anyway, back to the game. Um, Las Vegas gets a win. They should have beat the Rams, and they'd be in much better position in playoff standings. Um, like Julia said, next week is pretty much an elimination elimination game. Um, we'll see which Vegas team shows up. Uh, they get they get an unlucky win here, and if they get some momentum and get two out of the next three, who knows what could happen? Because the Jets and the Patriots are playing like they don't want that final wild card spot. So uh, we'll see what happens going down the stretch. But um, New England doesn't look like a playoff team. Doesn't look like they have the quarter. The defense is a playoff caliber defense. The offense with Matt Patricia running the offense and Mac Jones as the quarterback just do, do not look like a um, sustainable offense for for a for a playoff run. Um, 
I would get rid of Matt Patricia before I get rid of Mac Jones, just because I would try to get an actual offensive coordinator on my team to run the offense. Uh, and, then, and then if Mac Jones doesn't progress, then I would get rid of Mac Jones. But the fact that they brought in Matt Patricia, who is a defensive-minded guy, and then had a horrible failed stint in Detroit, just doesn't make sense to me. So I just don't understand. Um, as for Vegas, you know, this is a really good win when most of their guys didn't do much. You know, Devontae Adams was quiet. Josh Jacobs was quiet. Derek Carr had a, a decent day and nothing stellar. Um, I will blow the whistle on Mac Jones, though, because you got to make that tackle. I don't, who cares if you get the penalty? You throw a foot out there, cleat this man, do something. You got to get the, you got to bring him <laughs> down on the ground. Can't let this man just run over you and get a touchdown. You gotta do something. Drop kick this man. I don't really care what happens. You gotta do something better than just getting shoved to the ground. Um, <laughs> even if you got the 15 yard tripping, at least that makes them have to kick and make the field goal. You know what I mean? You gotta do something. You can't just let this guy run you over into into the end zone. Next game is the Tennessee Titans at the Los Angeles Chargers, and a game that another boring game. Um, everyone's gonna be like, oh, Justin Herbert for threw for 313 yards. They had 17 points meaningless yards to me the the best part of this game was justin herbert's final like two minute drive to get them into field goal range to to win the game because he made some nice passes mike williams made some nice catches um and they ended up winning the game so that was the best part of the game for me um the chargers are getting healthy at the right time they got keenan allen back mike williams is back uh except for Austin eckler he does not look healthy and and the way they used him in this game and the way he was holding his arm um that is a that is a concern for me. Um, he did have a nice touchdown run though, where he ran through a bunch of tackles and and everyone says Eckler is is uh, stronger than what he looks. So you know that just proves that theory because he he runs through a lot of arm tackles. So um, you know I, I do like I do like the fact that they do use him. Um, in the goal line situations, because a lot of times people backs like that don't get used. But um, this team just just again, I know Tennessee has a decent defense and they've been playing much higher than we anticipated them to play. But to only get 17 points and to have all your guys back is just I don't know. That's not playoff caliber team to me. Um, Brandon Staley still I still think makes just horrible coaching decisions every time I watch a Charger game. Uh, it's infuriating. I won't keep harping on it just because I feel like I do every week. Um, but luckily for the Chargers, uh, they are the sixth seed right now because the Jets and the Patriots and the Dolphins are all deciding to lose. So as of right now, the Chargers have snuck their way into the playoffs after, be on the, after being on the outside looking in. Um, but again, the Jets and the Patriots are just crumbling and then uh, Dolphins have lost three in a row, so uh, it's good. Good for the Chargers. Um, again, I, you know, we were talking about the NFC South and the AFC South may have also a losing record team make the playoffs. So I would rather see winning records get into the playoffs and get rid of the divisions, but that'll never happen. But anyway, the Titans have dropped a few in a row now as well, and that team just looks like they're a struggle. Uh, I don't like I'm blowing the whistle on the commentators in this game because Ryan Tannehill, Ryan Tannehill gets hurt. Malik Willis comes in and Malik Willis didn't look bad. And the Titans moved the ball a little bit. And Malik Willis, I think, went like three for four or four for five or something. I mean, he didn't look terrible. I'm not sitting here saying that he looked great, 
but the offense did move the ball down the field. Um, they ended up getting stopped, but I mean, it wasn't like it was just a three and out by any means, right? It's not like he had, went 0 for 2 and looked terrible. Uh, Tannehill comes back in and leads a touchdown drive, and the commentators are, oh my God, Ryan Tannehill gave him a shot of energy by coming back into the game, and look at how well he moves and commands this offense. Dude, they got 14 points. This team isn't averaging 30 points with Ryan Tannehill at the helm. Like, let's let's pump the brakes. I just don't I just don't like the narratives and and the way people try to hype certain quarterbacks up. It's not like Tannehill threw an 80 yard bomb and was looking amazing. It's just I don't know things like that frustrate me. So I'm blowing the whistle on the commentators in, in this in this game. Um, but shout out to the Chargers. They're in the playoffs right now and and and. If they get fully healthy, uh, I know they lost a couple corners to injuries, um, season-ending injuries. Uh, J.C. Jackson's one of them. But if they get healthy with with Bosa, if Bosa comes back and this this offense is getting healthy, they could make some noise in the playoffs. Uh, again, Justin Herbert's on a very high pedestal for a lot of people in the media. Um, he's kind of fallen off of that for me just because I don't see enough from him. Um Again, in the final drive, he made the plays to win the game, and that was impressive. But if you are a Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, and that's where they're kind of comparing you, I I need more. I need more than 17 points. I need more than, man, we let Tennessee stick around all game. Now we need a game-winning drive. Like I, This game should have been put away. Tennessee wasn't doing much (laughs) all game. So this game should never have been, I need a game-winning drive. So um, that's just... And I think a lot of that has to do with the head coach and a lot of the decisions they make, but that's just my personal opinion. It was uh, quite interesting, and it really struck me that the Titans made the decision to put Ryan Tannehill back in the game after he was carted off the field. And it just goes to show just how little faith they have in Malik Willis. And like you said, Patrick, he looked okay in limited opportunities, but now, it's clear to me that they don't want Malik Willis on the field unless it's a complete emergency situation. And it's not like Ryan Tannehill came back in the game and looked like he wasn't hurt. I mean, Ryan Tannehill, who is normally a pretty mobile quarterback, and we all know that he's a former wide receiver and all that, he could barely step up in the pocket in this game. And I do have to blow the whistle on the Titans for this. For whatever reason, Knowing that Ryan Tannehill's got a badly hurt ankle, knowing that Ryan Tannehill has a good chance he's not even going to be able to play next week, why, when you have some guy in the backfield named Derrick Henry, do you sneak Ryan Tannehill on the goal line with the game on the line? I, I, I don't understand these decisions that we make with these. You pay these quarterbacks all this money to throw them in the most reckless situations. And so Tannehill took forever to get up after scoring on that touchdown because the man's in pain. I mean, and, uh, what what logic are you using to say, you know what? You don't want to help a bad ankle having a bunch of 300-pound men fall on it. <laughs> that, 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 that'll help the ankle. And oh, by the way, because if you look at the beginning of that play, Tannehill was moving gingerly, and then Henry shoves him in, so now he can't move gingerly. And, you know, I just don't understand. You, know, you have these quarterbacks that you invest all this money in, and you make all these rules, uh, so to, you're protecting these quarterbacks, but yet, when it comes to play calling, you don't protect these quarterbacks at all. It makes absolutely no sense. There's no reason to run Tannehill in that situation. 
And I just I don't understand it. The other touchdown Tennessee scored was on a direct snap to Derrick Henry. You could have ran that again. It's not like the Chargers were showing that they could stop that play. And that way you could get Teddy Hill out of harm's day, uh, out of harm's way. But that's too much to ask. Common sense, just too much to ask for these teams. So yeah, you have that situation. The highlight of the game for me was Roger McCreary. The end of the first half, McCreary was able to leap out of bounds. He didn't step out of bounds, but he was able to leap over the out-of-bounds boundary, catch a Justin Herbert pass, throw it back in the field of play to his teammate, and Joshua Kalu ended up with an interception along the sideline. And that that took points off the board in the first half. That was just an impressive play to me. I've seen somebody do it before. Can't remember who, but it was it was a while ago. But it was just impressive to me that a rookie would have enough awareness to go get that ball, know he's not going to land in bounds, find a teammate. It's not like he blindly threw it back. He, he found Kalu and, and was able to toss him the ball so that Kalu could get the interception. Also, a nice play by Kalu because he was right near the, the sidelines and could have easily uh, stepped out with one of his feet, but he didn't do that. So just an impressive play all, the, all around. But I want to give Roger McCreary a ton of credit uh, for coming up with that play to end the first half. Uh, so now you get to the third quarter. Nasir Adderley, playing the most important position in football, playmaking safety, comes up with an interception uh, to give the Chargers a short field. But then Kevin Meyer comes right back, playing the most important position in football, playmaking safety, and gets an interception for the Titans to end that scoring opportunity for the Chargers. So missed opportunities for the Chargers uh, throughout this game. But uh, now i got to blow the whistle on the Titans. In a 7-7 game, okay, 7-7 game in the third quarter, that means both offenses are struggling. That means both defenses are playing well, or in the case of this game, both defenses are overperforming, quite frankly. You need to ride the hot hand. The hot hand is the defense. What you don't want to do is give the offense a spark on the other team when that offense isn't going well. So you have Randy Bullock. Randy Bullock, who had not attempted a field goal this year of 50 or more yards, had not attempted a single one. Why? Because he's not a distance kicker. Since 2015, so we're going back eight seasons, he is 8 for 16 going into this game on kicks 50 or more yards. And again, 0 for 0 this season going into this game. So you know you have a kicker who's a 50-50 kicker on kicks of this length. And you decide to attempt a field goal from 51 yards out for no reason, knowing you don't have a distance kicker. If you want somebody who can make 50-yard kickers, who can make 50-yard kicks, sign somebody else. But you know Randy Bullock can't make that kick. You know that. That's confirmed by the fact that he hasn't attempted one all season long. Again, he has eight of them, eight makes from that distance in eight years. That lets you know, again, he's probably not going to make it. There's just no reason to take that risk at this stage of the game. So predictably, Bullock misses the kick. Now he's 8 for 17 on field goals 50 yards or longer over the last eight seasons. And you give the Chargers another short field, and they're able to convert that into a touchdown. So that was just a poor decision on the part of Mike Vrabel. I just didn't agree with that from the beginning. And I said before he even kicked that, I was like, this is a long one from Brandy Bullock. And sure enough, yeah, you miss and you set up a touchdown. Now you got to try to come from behind Fortunately, the Chargers were able to come from behind with that Tannehill touchdown that I talked about earlier. But uh, I, I just I just hated that decision because you just gave points away, in my opinion, in a game where you really couldn't afford to do it. 
Justin Herbert had a nondescript game overall in this game. I wasn't impressed with Herbert either. Again, the Titans have one of the worst passing defenses in the league. Uh, this is a Titans pass rush that has been struggling over the last month ever since Danico Autry went down. And so against this, this defense, I expected more from Justin Herbert, and he didn't have it. That said, the last drive, Justin Herbert did come through. i got to give him credit, especially for that last throw. Last throw, he's able to escape a pass rush from Rashad Weaver, get over to his right, throw an incredible pass on the run, pinpoint on the sidelines to Mike Williams. A nice catch by Mike Williams as well. Don't want to overlook his role on that play. But I'll, I'll give Herbert credit. That was a great throw to set up the game with a field goal. But again, overall, a nondescript performance from Justin Herbert against a bad pass defense from the Titans. Is you know, you would like to see more than 17 points uh, from this offense, which is pretty much at full strength at the school skill position now. Uh, for the Titans, this is four losses in a row. They've opened the AFC South race up. They've invited everybody back into the AFC South race, but only Jacksonville has accepted the invitation. So you've got a two-team race now in the AFC South. The Jacksonville team that should have been burned a long time ago, but the Titans have had a rough month. So now Jacksonville's back in the picture. Tennessee's got to find a way to beat this feisty Texans team. They, sh they should beat Houston. Again, Derrick Henry tends to have a field day against that defense. But uh, you yeah, just need to see Tennessee playing better than what they've shown lately. Now, as for the Colts, they get uh, – excuse me, as for the Chargers, they get the Colts on Monday night. And you have to think that the Colts might still be shell-shocked from what happened to them on Saturday. So this is probably the right time to get the Colts. But I would say with the Chargers as well, offensively, they need to be better than this because one thing the Colts can do is defend the pass. Certainly a lot better than the Titans can. So if you can't move the ball through the air on Tennessee, and when I say move the ball through the air, I mean to score points. I don't mean just to rack up, like Patrick said, meaningless yards, to score points, then uh, you're going to have a tougher challenge going up against that Colts secondary led by Stephon Gilmore. All right, next on the docket, the Cincinnati Bengals who end up with a come-from-behind win. 34 to 23 over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, this game started off great for Tampa Bay. And again, another one of these games we're talking about this weekend where a team starts off great and all of a sudden the wheels fall off and they can't respond. So, with the Buccaneers, you know, they get an early field goal. They have a fourth and goal situation. Uh, again, Patrick's favorite. They, they go for fourth and goal. They convert it. They get a touchdown pass to Russell Gage Jr. Uh, they come right back down and get a touchdown pass on the screen to Chris Godwin. And you look up, they're up 17-0, a defense forced an early turnover from Joe Burrow. And you're thinking, okay, if you're Tampa Bay, this is the best the Buccaneers have looked in a while. And so Tampa Bay finds themselves up 17-0. The Bengals get a field goal at the end of the first half to at least get a little bit of momentum, at least a little something to feel good about going to the second half. But Another game where it's 17-3 at halftime. And then Tampa Bay just completely melted down. Completely melted down in the third quarter. In the second half of this game. The first five possessions of the second half. This is what Tampa Bay did. They botched a fake punt. And I guess it was a fake punt. If, if it was a fake punt, nobody told Giovanni Bernard. And that's the direction the ball was snapped. So a turnover on downs because of a botched fake punt. You follow that up with a fumble. Excuse me, you follow that up with an interception. Excuse me, it's the second possession of the second half of the Buccaneers was an interception. Then you have a fumble. 
Then you have another fumble. And on that second fumble, Brady's just trying to hand the ball off, and the ball just squeezes out of his left hand. So it's not like Tampa Bay, it's not like Cincinnati did anything there. And then the fifth turnover was another interception, an interception by Jermaine Pratt, Wolfpack Pride. It's nice to talk positively about an NC State player <laughs> during this podcast. But that's how your second half started off, five straight turnovers. And I can tell you how not to win a game at any level. I don't care if it's the NFL, college, high school, peewee, whatever the case is. You turn the ball over five times in a row in the second half of a game, you're going to lose. <laughs> I can say that with a pretty, pretty high level of certainty. So Tampa Bay, and, and what makes it worse is, again, on a couple of these plays, again, the Giovanni Bernard botched punt situation and the Tom Brady fumbled handoff, these are turnovers where the defense isn't even making plays. You're just giving the ball away. And so that, that's the most disappointing part. It's one thing if you turn the ball over a bunch of times and the guys are making incredible plays. But it's another thing to just, again, give the ball away. And that's what Tampa Bay did in the second half of this game. So Cincinnati was only able to get a field goal off of that botched punt situation. So you still had an opportunity to bounce back. The, the Bengals weren't able to take advantage of the first turnover. But then you gave them a second turnover, and a third turnover, and a fourth turnover, and a fifth turnover, and at some point, a team as good as Cincinnati is going to wake up and play some ball and put you away. And so that's what happened in this game. The Bengals only ended this game with 237 yards of offense. Normally, that's not good. But it was hard for them to get more than 237 yards of offense because they had so many extremely short fields. There weren't yards to get. So again, it speaks to how meaningless yards can be sometimes. Sometimes it's just about getting the yards available to you. The Bengals were able to do that enough after the Buccaneers gave them chance after chance after chance to get it right. So uh, this game was more or less gifted to Cincinnati, but credit to the Bengals for eventually taking advantage of all the opportunities the Buccaneers gave them. I do have to give a shout-out to Tyler Boyd. Boyd ended up catching the go-ahead touchdown in this game uh, that certainly kept the Bengals ahead for good. But he catches a touchdown after while dealing with playing with a broken finger. And it's hard enough to play any position in football with a broken finger, but to play wide receiver with a broken finger, that is extremely tough. And if you look at that touchdown catch, Boyd caught that with all forms. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't want to use his hands to catch that ball at, at all. But for him to go out there and tough it out and to be available in that situation, uh, for a Joe Burrow touchdown pass. That just speaks a lot to his character and how badly he wants it. So I got to give him a lot of credit. Uh, once again, we saw Tom Brady stay in a game for garbage time and get more garbage time stats. Uh, Brady threw a touchdown at the end of this game with under a minute left. At that point, again, the Bengals have stopped playing. We saw Tom Brady stay in uh, against the 49ers way longer than he needed to just to kind of pad stats. I just feel like it's beneath Tom Brady, or at least should be at this point. Uh, to feel the need to just rack up meaningless yards at the end of these blowout kind of losses just to pad his stats. Like, we get it, Tom Brady. You're a statistical GOAT. Nobody's going to catch you with any of these passing yards and stuff. You don't need that extra 70 yards at the end of a game that you have no chance to win. I mean, it's, it's embarrassing. It's beneath Tom Brady. I'm tired of seeing Tom Brady rack up these garbage time stats. Uh, one concern for me with Cincinnati is Sam Hubbard got injured in this game, and they're saying that he's going to miss some time. You already lost Trey Hendrickson, and I spoke about him last week and how he's as good as any pass rusher outside of Miles Garrett and T.J. Watt over the last three years. 
uh, as far as sack production. You already lose Hendrickson. Now you lose Sam Hubbard, who is your other edge rusher. And so that's something to, to keep an eye on with Cincinnati. Can they generate a pass rush for as long as Hendrickson and Hubbard are out? That's and This is not the time of year where you want to lose your pass rush, but uh, that's where Cincinnati is right now. Uh, the good news for Cincinnati is they do play New England, and that's kind of a low-octane passing offense. So maybe for a week, that pass rush issue doesn't, doesn't hurt them. And then hopefully maybe either Hendrickson or Hubbard can get close to getting back. But they need at least one of those guys, ideally both, if they're going to make a run. Uh, as for Tampa Bay, again, just, just continuing to struggle, but continuing to benefit from a weak, weak, weak division. So the Buccaneers, despite uh, their blunders and their blooper reel from the second half, they still lead their division, sole possession of first place somehow, some way. They get an Arizona team that looks just as bad as they do. So maybe Tampa can find a way to get back on track, but you can't take anything for granted with the Buccaneers because they are helping opponents beat them right now. And this is what concerns me the most about Cincinnati. And I talked about this preseason is that in a game they should have lost because Tampa Bay was just outworking them. Joe Burrow wasn't doing anything. The run game for Cincinnati wasn't doing anything. Then the refs gave Cincinnati 87 tries in the red zone. Um, it's like, I don't know, I just don't, this game was so frustrating to watch. Tampa Bay was completely just in control of this game. The second half happens, and Julius already touched on it. They had like 75,000 turnovers in a row. Uh, they didn't want to play any offense, and Cincinnati scored like 31 unanswered points or something. Ridiculous. Um, yeah, Tom Brady got his touchdown at the end of the game to Russell Gage, so he could get over 300 yards passing, blah, blah, blah. But, um, Tampa Bay should have won this game. It is, it's not as bad as the Indianapolis Colts-Minnesota game, but if you watch the game, it was really bad because, again, Tampa Bay in control of this game, um, and then it was just literal mistake after literal mistake. Even before all the turnovers and terrible special teams calls, Cincinnati, they sacked Joe Burrow on a 25-yard sack. And then there's a penalty. And then there's more penalties. And then they stop him again on, on third down. And there's another penalty. And then the refs called another penalty. And there's a So they just were like, all right, Cincinnati, we want you to score on this drive. Like, we stopped you. We got you out of field goal range because Joe Burrow's dumb and runs backwards for 25 yards. It wasn't even like Joe Burrow ran back for five yards. This man just kept going in circles and running back. And Joe Burrow, you're not Jalen Hurts or Lamar Jackson. You're not outrunning these dudes. What are you doing? Anyway, this was just it was it was an awful game to watch in the second half. Um, Tampa Bay is a really bad team. Um and yet somehow at six and eight they're winning a division. Eight losses in fifteen weeks and you're winning a division. I I hope we never say that again. Um I mean, unfortunately Tennessee's seven and seven and they're winning a division. So I mean I'm sure we will say it again, but I I hope we don't have to because as we've touched on, the NFC South has a lot of bad teams in them and they are all in contention for a division title. So it's very sad to see. Um, 
Cincinnati has more control of their destiny now uh, with the division, but they still do have to play the Ravens again. So I think it's going to come down to that game. And if and if Lamar Jackson is healthy, um, that's going to be an interesting game. If he's not healthy, um, I think Cincinnati's going to win the division. But I think, and the best part about it is, it's the final game of the season. So Cincinnati and the Ravens meet week eighteen. Uh, Cincinnati has a really tough schedule at New England versus Buffalo versus the Ravens. So that could be three losses. That could be one and two. That could be two and one. We don't know uh, if they come out as they did against Tampa Bay in the first half against all three of those teams. They will most likely be losses um, because even though the Patriots had a terrible loss and were dumb this last week, they're not going to turn it over five straight times to you. It's <laughs> just not going to happen. So, um, again, it, it, the Bengals have a tough remaining schedule. I do think that that final game in Week 18, and, and, and I'm happy it's against the Ravens, I think it will come down to who's going to win the division. Um, again, this is all if Lamar Jackson gets to come back onto the field, because if he doesn't, I don't think the Ravens will win another game. Um, but if he does, uh, I'm really excited for that Week 18 matchup. But... Again, the Ravens have Falcons, Steelers, then Bengals. Bengals have Patriots, Bills, then Ravens. So, again, if if Lamar Jackson doesn't come back and they can sneak a win against the Falcons or Steelers, I think the Bengals are going to go 1-1 one one in the next couple of games. I don't think they're going to beat the Bills. They can. I, don't, I just don't think they will. Um, I think that last game is going to come down to who's going to win the AFC North, and, and that's something I want to see, especially if Lamar Jackson is healthy and playing. And I agree with Julius. The the line injuries to Cincinnati has me worried, and this is why I'm worried about them going to New England. Ramondre Stevenson just ran for 172 yards against against the Raiders with a healthy defensive line. I don't want to see what he's going to do against a not healthy defensive line. So that's the only thing I'm worried about with Cincinnati going to New England. I think Cincinnati is the better team than New England, um, but. If they can control the clock, uh, New England has a good enough defense to hold Cincinnati in check. Not saying they will, but they have a good enough defense to hold them in check. And if Ramondre Stevenson can run as he did against the Raiders, that could be a upset brewing in New England. Now, moving on to the Sunday night game, and probably the best officiated game of the weekend. I mean, the refs <laughs> in this game were just on point. They were so good. No bad calls at all. Um and the New York Giants win 20 to 12 against the bum burgundy and gold commanders um worst jerseys in the NFL worst owner in the NFL um but has my favorite rookie on their team in Jahan Dotson and he balled out um also a huge Brian Robinson Jr fan uh in a game that the commanders probably should have easily won um because Everything on offense looked easier for them, besides the Curtis Samuel jet sweep. Don't know why they ran that so much, but thank you. Um, Brian Robinson Jr. was just gashing through the Giants' defense. Don't know why they stopped running him. Antonio Gibson, even. He didn't have that many carries, but he every time he touched the ball, pretty much got positive yards. Um Jahan Dotson had such a big game because Heineke threw him an effort ball like Zach Wilson does, and Jahan Dotson came down with it. Um, you know, I think this game proved 
what Julius talks about all the time. There's a reason why backup quarterbacks are backup quarterbacks. There's a reason why guys aren't the guy. Um, Heineke cost this team the game. I know everyone wants to complain about the refs were terrible. The refs were awful. I was being sarcastic. I hope you guys weren't taking me serious. Um, the the one that pisses me off the most is the one where Terry McLaurin gave the man 17 thumbs ups. And the ref was like, yeah, thumbs up, man. You're good. And then threw a flag on him, which would have been a touchdown for Brian Robinson Jr. Uh, would have made it 20 to 18. Don't know what happens on the two-point conversion. Uh, I don't like that Commander fans are saying they were robbed because, yes, it was pass interference on that last play, but that doesn't mean that you're still getting a touchdown. That means the ball's getting put at the one-yard line. You're not, getting, you're not getting a touchdown because it's pass interference. Would Brian Robinson Jr. probably would have ran it in and got a touchdown? Yes. Do we know that for a fact? No. Um, would you have converted a two-point conversion? We don't know. You know, so like to say you were robbed of a game, that would be that for me, that's saying like the pass interference is giving you eight points. It wouldn't have given you eight points, it would have put the ball at the one. Who knows what happens from there, right? But Heineke cost him this game. Uh huge fumble for a touchdown by Kayvon Thibodeau, who had an amazing game. We will talk about that in a short minute. But he gave up a fumble six to Kayvon Thibodeau. Then he fumbled again when they were in the red zone. So uh, points lost uh, by Heineke and points given up by him in this game. He should have thrown an interception that would have ended the game. It hit the dude right in the hands. He just dropped it. Um, you know, Heineke just did not look good in this game. And again, and a big chunk of his yards came to a Hail Mary prayer to Jahan Dotson that could have been an interception if the Giants secondary didn't have guys from the Shell gas station playing in their secondary because everyone's injured. So, um, this was just a bad game for, for Heineke today. Uh, the defense for Washington really didn't impress me. Um, I mean, the New York Giants offense didn't have a great game, but it, you, you would, you were expecting at some point for the commanders, defensive line or someone to make a play and they just really they made stops right they made stops which defenses do they just never made that signature play kind of like Kayvon Thibodeau did um Thibodeau you know I was so happy when he fell to the Giants we talked about this Julius in our in our draft podcast I was really excited when he fell um to the Giants I thought he could have gone number one overall we both thought he could have gone number one overall in this draft and we thought he was getting a lot of flack kind of like the Jadavion Clowney um, even though he still went number one overall, but they were like, does he have the motor? Does he love football? Does he want to play football? He was getting a lot of that stuff, and that's why he fell. And um, I think I think Sunday night proved he has the motor, and he has the desire to play because he was the only person on the Giants defense making plays. He was all over the field, and he single-handedly pretty much won us this game. Um, it, it was in a, one of the most impressive defensive end performances I've I've seen in a long time from one individual player. Um, and I know you think O'Connell's going to run away with Coach of the Year, but I think Dayball has something to say about that because I think most people had the Vikings being playoff contenders. Did they have them winning their division? Probably not. Um, but I think they had them as playoff contenders I think most people had the Giants as finishing last in their division, probably in a top five draft pick, and he has them contending for a playoff spot. So um, I think Coach of the Year is going to come down to a couple guys. I think also Sirianni for Philadelphia could win it because I don't think people had them only having one loss, and if they go 
16 and one, you know, who knows? Um, so I think there's a couple guys that are, uh, up for coach of the year, but I think the giants are way overperforming. I only had them winning four or five games this year. Um, and so they've obviously doubled my expectations already. Um, and it was a huge win for the Giants because uh, the loser of this game, their playoff probability went took a real big hit, and the winner of this game's playoff probability went really high up. So, um, and the Giants have a really tough schedule coming up. I could see them losing the next three games and being the first team in the 17-game era to go 500 because they have a tie. Um, it's the only way you're going to go 500 now, Julius, and, I, and the Giants could do it. They could be eight, eight and one because that's just the type of season we've had. Um, but again, Daniel Jones did just enough. Didn't do any. Didn't have any costly mistakes. Um, and Saquon, you know, was steady. Got us a touchdown. But this was really on the Giants' defense again, which was how we were winning games earlier. And the lack of offense and good play calling on the commander side. Again, don't know why you ran Curse Samuel so much. It didn't work all night. They did it way more than they should have. I felt like they tried to put the ball in Taylor Hanke's hand to make things happen where they should have just been running the ball. Brian Robinson Jr. could have probably had 200 yards rushing in this game, um, but they went away from him. Um, as a com- If I was a Commanders fan, I would want change from the top down. I know everyone wants a new owner. Everyone knows that. But I'm talking about coaching, GM, all that stuff. I, I just would want a fresh start because the way this organization is going and just the, the play calling and just – just the way that they have lost games, um, you know, I, it's just baffling because, again, running Curtis Samuel that much after it wasn't working doesn't make sense. Abandoning the run doesn't make sense. They were never out of this game. It wasn't like the Giants were winning 20-3, to three, so they had to start throwing it a bunch. It just, yeah, I just don't understand the philosophy <laughs> and everything that the commanders wanted to do. Um, but, again, shout-out to the Giants. Big win. Uh, escaped escaped uh, Washington with a W. Definitely some very questionable calls at the end by the refs. Um, again, we don't know what would have happened on the two-point conversion, but um, you, you would like to see them have an opportunity because the one thing I hate the most, and I am a Giants fan, but the one thing I hate the most as a sports fan is when the refs dictate a game and don't let the players decide it on the field. And I do feel like with the bad Terry McLaurin flag, um, I, I, I am more mad. I'm not... If I was a commander fan, I'd be more mad about that because that took points off the board. You had a touchdown, and that took it off. The pass interference doesn't give you a touchdown. So um, as a sports fan, I'm more upset that the that the refs dictated this game more than they should have. Maybe they just didn't want to see another tie. I thought we were going to see another tie. Maybe they just didn't want another tie, but um, I'm, I'm more upset about that. And then the Terry McLaurin one is just egregious. You cannot give this man a thumbs up and tell him he's good then give him an illegal formation penalty. That's uh, NFL needs to find their refs if, if that's the type of crap that's going to be happening in a, in, a, in a game that of this magnitude for both teams. This was a huge game for both teams. You can't can't have something like that take points off the board. Uh, I'm going to start off with just a quick point of clarification. I Just uh, for our viewers and listeners to, to have a clear point, uh, for Kevin O'Connell, I think he should – be the run uh, runaway coach of the year. I don't think he will be. I just, I just want to state that as a point of record. I certainly think that Dayball and Sirianni will get some votes, and I would not be surprised if either one of those guys did win. But I just think that when you think about the Vikings and how they've blown games time and time again over the years and how Kirk Cousins has blown games at the end of games, 
And to now to turn around this year when the Vikings are winning those games at the end, I, I talk about it all the time, bad teams find ways to lose, good teams find ways to win. Have Kevin O'Connell with basically the same team that they had already has turned those losses into wins. And a lot of that is just with a different philosophy and not trying to pad cousin stats, but actually trying to play good team football. So uh, that's why I am with that. But that certainly doesn't take away of the job that somebody like a Brian Dayball has done or somebody like a Nick Sirianni has done. Now, getting into this game, there's, there's a lot to talk about here. And of course, people are focused on the end of this game. So I'll get right into talking about the end of this game. I actually have the opposite point of view that you do. I was more upset with the lack of the pass interference call than I was the illegal formation call. And the reason for me was the accuracy of the calls. Now, I would need more information as to what exactly the dialogue was between Terry McLaurin and the referee were. But I can tell you that Terry McLaurin was not lined up in a legal formation. <laughs> like, if he was told that he was, then that's a problem because he was not on the line of scrimmage. Like, that, that, that's not even a judgment call. That, that's a, you, you can sit there and see it. Anybody sitting at home can see McLaurin lined up short on the line. And when you look at the replay, you see McLaurin check with the ref, but you never really see McLaurin move up. You can see him check with the ref and then kind of like lean forward. Like, like, like no, your feet are still in the same spot. Like, you're still not, not lined up properly. Now, I don't know if he got the green light from, from the ref. He says he did. And if that's the case, then that's a separate conversation that needs to happen. That's a separate discussion if, if referees are telling guys they're lined up correctly and they're not. But I can tell you McLaurin was not lined up correctly. So the call, while it's something you wouldn't expect to be made in that situation, it wasn't the wrong call. So that one is a little tricky. What's not tricky is a guy getting almost put in a full Nelson before the ball gets to him, <laughs> and, and there's no flag. I mean, Darnay Holmes had a perfectly executed submission hold on Curtis Samuel for most of that play. And you could have called illegal contact. You could have called holding. You could have called pass interference. You could have called any of that, and it would have given the commanders another chance. That's to Patrick's point. Getting another chance doesn't guarantee anything. So you can't jump to conclusions and say, had that play been called, the commanders would have scored a touchdown and got the two-point conversion. But that was the call that I'm looking at, and I'm thinking to myself, wow. Like, as, as, as a Raiders fan, as a fan of a team that has had plenty of penalties or plenty of calls go against us over the years, that's as bad as anything that's gone against us like, outside of the whole tuck rule thing. That, like, like... Tuck rule aside, that's as bad as any other call that has gone against the Raiders over the last 20 years. And that that's saying a lot. So that that was a tough one for me. That was that just perfectly said, that was just perfectly executed defense. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> don't let them catch it. If they call the flag, they call the flag. If they don't, great. <laughs> for what it's worth, I was watching NFL Network and D'Angelo Hall actually said that as well. And he's a former commander. So if D'Angelo Hall says it, you know, people love players' opinions. Now, granted, D'Angelo Hall says he's known Darnay Holmes since high school. That might have something to do with how he feels about that. But he said the same thing as you, Patrick. So there is that. But, you know, people like to focus on the last play of the game or that missed call from the refs. And, you know, that that's a factor. But let's not also forget what else happened. I mean, we can talk about what ifs and what should have happened all the time. Let's not forget that a couple plays before all that, Taylor Heineke threw a perfect pass to Nick McBride in the end zone that McBride just dropped. That should have 
if we're going to get into woulda, coulda, shoulda, that throw should have ended the game. And it seems like it's a rule that once a week, the defense has to drop a Taylor Heineke interception. I, I, I don't know what's up with this. And even during the broadcast, the commentators were talking about pixie dust and all this other stuff during the game and brought up that pixie dust on that play. And so, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little tired of seeing that. But, you know, again, Heineke messed up there. Let's also not forget that Heineke lost two fumbles in this game, one of which was a fumble that was lost in the red zone that took points off the board. And that changes the complexion of the game on the last drive. If you score a touchdown on that possession, and I'm talking about the red zone fumble that Heineke had. So there were other opportunities to win the game outside of the last play. And there were also other opportunities that the Giants could have sealed the game outside of the last play. So there's a lot of hypotheticals you could get into. But at the end of the day, knowing what's on the line, you score 12 points at home, there's a limitation to how much complaining you can do. Coming off a bye. Coming off a bye. Coming off a bye against a Giants team that, again, while overall they surpassed expectations for the seasons, but they certainly weren't coming into this game uh, with any momentum. You let this game get away from. And, you know, I don't know what's going on with the play calling either, Patrick. Uh, uh, you talked about it. There is this insistence on running this stupid jet sweep with Curtis Sam. Curtis Samuel ran the ball five times for one yard. At what point do you not realize every run play we call except the sweep to Curtis Samuel is working? <laughs> and this has always been my problem with Ron Rivera. Ron Rivera plays favorites, and Curtis Samuel is a favorite for sure. There's no reason that you keep running these jet sweeps, getting the second half of this game. Brian Robinson had four carries for 35 yards. Okay, four carries. He was averaging almost nine yards a carry in the second half. He only touched the ball four times as a running back. Why? Because you want to give his carries to Curtis Samuel. This is why I look at Rob Rivera and that coaching staff, and I say this, and the Commanders fans aren't going to like this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think the Commanders would have won this game, again, since we're getting into all these hypotheticals with this game. I think the Commanders would have won this game had Carson Wentz been the quarterback. And why do I say that? Because... If the team was running the ball this well with Carson Wentz under center, they would have never given Carson Wentz the opportunity to make the mistakes that Taylor Heineke made in this game. I think if Carson Wentz starts this game, Brian Robinson gets 20 to 25 carries. And Antonio Gibson gets another 12 to 15. Because that, that was the thing that was going best for you if you're the commanders. But because there's this need to try to make Taylor Heineke this hero, you're going to start calling all these plays and doing all this other stuff. Keep in mind, Taylor Heineke, where did he start off his career? Carolina. Guess who was there? Ron Rivera. You know, Curtis Samuel, that same Carolina thing. So it's just the Carolina guys, the Carolina Panthers guys, not, not University of North Carolina. That's, that's a whole separate issue. Carolina Panthers guys being asked to do too much in this game when everything else is going the commander's way. Jahan Dotson, you talked about him. He had a nice game. Terry McLaurin did his thing in this game. You insist on trying to make Taylor Heineke a hero. You insist on trying to involve Curtis Samuel. Keep in mind, two of those runs that Curtis Samuel had were both third and one situations, and you failed to convert those. Why on third and one? Do you do you not? You see what Brian Robinson's doing in this game? He's averaging, like I said, nine yards a carry in the second half, seven yards a carry for the game. You don't think he can get a yard on third and one? You don't even give him a chance to? I mean, that, that, that really says a lot about 
you trying to pick and choose who gets the opportunities versus using who makes sense in this game. So that would be the number one thing I would look at if I was a Commanders fan. That would be the thing that I'd be most upset about. And I've talked about how I've not been impressed by the Commanders coaching all year, and this is just the latest example of the Commanders making mistakes in coaching that's affecting them on the field. So you count what the coaching staff is doing there, Combine that with the fact that Heineke now has lost four fumbles in his last five games, so there's a bit of an issue with him uh, protecting the football as a runner, and Heineke does like to run around, so that's that's a problem if he's not protecting the football while he does his running around thing. Those are your bigger issues. The referees might have been an issue in this game, but the bigger issues are the things that are within your control, and that's putting less on Heineke's plate and getting rid of that Curtis Samuel jet sweep. You don't need to run that five times a game, especially when both of your running backs are being effective, just doing what they actually get paid to do, which is take those handoffs. Uh, you talked about Kayvon Thibodeau, and you just, you just love to see the impact that he had on this game. Uh, he was feeling it from the beginning. You saw him get the strip sack that he picked up and scored a touchdown on right near the goal line. Equally as impressive, because I, I talk a lot about sacks on this on this podcast, but there were a couple tackles, and Kayvon Thibodeau actually had a game high, 12 tackles in this game, which is crazy for a defensive end. But there were a couple times in this game where Kayvon Thibodeau was making tackles 12, 15 yards down the field. I mean, he's chasing plays from behind. And a couple of those plays, he got penetration in the backfield and then came back to chase a play down the field. And like Patrick said, you're talking about somebody who, whose passion for football was questioned at one point. And he's going out there and making plays 15 yards down the field. The play that Taylor Heineke almost ran in the tie, to tie the game up on, who was there to hit him? Kayvon Thibodeau, he, he's the guy that was there to stop that, even though Heineke kind of tripped over himself. But it's, it's Kayvon Thibodeau downfield again making a play. So you're talking about a defensive end with unlimited range. I thought he was as good as any prospect in this draft. I had him right up there with Kyle Hamilton as the best prospect in this draft. And it's just good to see a guy showing that kind of passion, that kind of emotion. When you hear his press conferences, you can hear and feel the passion he has for the game. It's just ridiculous that they ever made up those fake narratives about him loving the game and him not having a great motor and all this other stuff. I just, I just hate that they did that to him, but it's, it's redemption season for Kayvon Thibodeau, and I love to see it. Um, the other thing that, that I'm looking at in this game is the last possession of the game, defensively for, for Washington, they still had a chance to get the ball, but they, they couldn't stop Saquon Barkley. On, on, on the last possession. He had three straight runs where he had 41 yards. Now, before that, he was getting bottled up a lot, but you had another opportunity. And again, these are the things I'm looking at that I'd be more disappointed in if I'm a Commanders fan. I'm disappointed that that last series, we couldn't stop Barkley at all. And when Barkley was feeling good, he had a couple of spin moves where he made the safeties miss a couple different times. I mean, he had a great ending to the game after not doing a whole lot outside of his touchdown run for most of the game. So... There are other chances Washington had in this game, but now nah, they didn't come through, couldn't make the play when they needed to on either side of the ball. And, you know, they got the result they got. Uh, so, yeah, if you're, if you're the Giants, you're, you're feeling way better than you did a week ago about your playoff chances. I still tend to believe that the Giants will find a way to sneak in there one way or another. And it's tough because, like I said, the schedule is not easy, not favorable for the Giants, but. In eight five and one, you got to feel pretty decently about your chances, but they, I do think they're going to have to find a way to pick up a win somewhere in there. Uh, if you're Washington, uh, this was a big blow, and we knew going into this game, the team that lost this game is going to have an uphill climb to uh, seize one of those last wild card spots. So now, if you're Washington, you have to go on the road 
uh, to face a red hot 49ers team. And that's a game that you really might want to win <laughs> if you want if you want a chance to stay alive in this wild card race. But that's that's a tall task to go into San Francisco and win or to go into Santa Clara and win. So, yeah, Washington, did. this is a huge setback for them. And again, there needs to be more of a focus on the things they can control versus the things they can't. And now we get into the live reaction part of the show where we give our immediate uh, thoughts and reactions to Monday Night Football. So the game just ended a little while ago. The Green Bay Packers with a much-needed 24-12 win over the Los Angeles Rams. And uh, the Packers weren't overly impressive in this game, but they did enough to keep their season alive. But that's, that's all you could ask for if you're the Packers at this point. Uh, interesting to see how the Packers' offense was going to look with the return of Romeo Dobbs. I wanted to see how that uh, how that distribution of targets was going to look because we've talked in recent weeks about how hot Christian Watson has been, but we also know that uh, before Romeo Dobbs got hurt, he had a bigger role in the offense than uh, Watson did. So it was interesting to see what that was going to be like. And it looked like it was a pretty even distribution between Dobbs and Watson. If anything, there might have been a little bit of a lean to, to Dobbs, actually. Uh, so we didn't have the uh, signature 50-yard touchdown that we've seen seemingly every week from Christian Watson. But again, as I spoke about before, uh, that was just not realistic to sustain the type of touchdown pace uh, that Watson was on. This game in some ways looked like the way we thought the Packers would look going into the season or the way we hoped the Packers would look going into the season, which is, you know, establish the run, move the ball to the ground, uh, create turnovers on defense, and let those carry you with Aaron Rodgers kind of being a complimentary piece. And you got that to some degree in this game. Rodgers did throw an interception on a miscommunication play. And uh, honestly, on that play, I'd, I'd have to know what exactly the play was, but just at looking at it, I thought, that Lazard actually ran the proper route or adjusted properly. And uh, Rodgers threw the ball where he would have led Lazard right into a safety. That ended up being an interception by Taylor Rapp playing that most important position in football, playmaking safety. But uh, once the Packers got settled in, uh, they just took control of this game and there just wasn't any fight from the Rams from an offensive standpoint. Uh, Patrick got a, Another one of his treats, the Packers did go for a fourth down uh, within the red zone and with a chance to uh, with a chance to go ahead, or at least tie the, excuse me, not to go ahead, but a chance to tie the game with a field goal. Or not that they go ahead with a field goal at that time. But uh, they decided to go for it. They got it. And they ended up scoring uh, the first of A.J. Dillon's two touchdowns in this game. And they just didn't look back from there. As for the Rams, uh, back to earth. <laughs> this is the case for the Rams. They got a nice, nice boost to their season with uh, the miraculous come from behind win that should have never taken place. But, you know, the Raiders blew it against the Rams going back to Thursday. The Rams get kind of a kind of a mini buy. I mean, they, they played on Thursday, didn't play again until Monday. That's a nice break. But uh, again, back to earth for the Rams. They couldn't move the ball on offense at all this game, particularly in the second half. Uh, Baker Mayfield had a rough looking interception thrown to Rasul Douglas. And Rasul Douglas, I don't know what he was doing on, on his lateral. He, he throws a lateral as he's falling down and not, throws a completely blind lateral. He was looking, didn't throw the lateral. Then as he's being tackled, he throws it backwards uh, to nobody. But, but uh, the Packers come away with that ball. And the, the, that, was, that was kind of the Rams' last chance. Like, the Rams picked that ball up and ran 
that might have been a chance for them to produce some offense. But other than that, uh, the Rams had nothing going offensively in this game. Like I said, particularly as the game wound on, they just couldn't get anything going. This is what we expect from a Rams team that's missing Cooper Cup. They had another offensive lineman. Well, Brian Allen's been hurt previously this year, but another offensive line injury. So when you have no offensive line, you don't have Cooper Cup, you don't have Allen Robinson. And I know he hasn't really been involved much in the offense, but again, an injury to Allen Robinson means everybody else gets pushed up a notch up the depth chart. And so you're starting guys that don't belong as starters in the NFL and wide receiver. Well, these guys who should be like, Guys, starters in three receiver sets, sets now have to try to be a number one receiver, and it's just not working out for the Rams. So, uh, an ugly game for the Rams. For the Packers, they got what they needed in this game. Again, not the prettiest game for the Packers either, but uh, they got what they needed. They got the win. They'll go to Miami next week. That's going to be a tough assignment for them, but if they can find a way to win that game, which I, I feel like they have to play better, and we have to see what's going on with A.J. Dillon, his, his injury situation, but... uh if the Packers can find a way to, to beat Miami, then all of a sudden they, they keep their slim hopes alive of making the playoffs. They need a lot of help, Green Bay does, but it's not it's not completely over for them. As for the Rams, it is completely over for them, and they just continue to be in evaluation mode for next season. And, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of questions moving forward. But, yeah, it's a good thing that the Rams had their, their shining moment last week because they didn't have a shining moment at all in this game. Yeah, hopefully the Baker hype is gone now. Um, back to earth for him and the Rams. Um, you know, Cam Akers actually was having a pretty nice game in the first half, and once again, team goes away from running the ball, and and they had no offense of game plan really. Um, Jalen Ramsey almost you know saved the game for them with a, an amazing strip of Aaron Jones. And then, like Julia said, then Baker Mayfield goes and throws the pick to Rasul Douglas, and then he decides to pitch it backwards, and, you know, all hell broke loose. It was a weird four-play set right there. Or actually, I think the interception happened first, and then the Ramsey fumble happened. Um, I think so. Uh, but it's just a, that was a weird, like, four-play sequence right there. But, yeah. That pick by Aaron Rodgers, I think the Manning brothers said it best when they just went, you just don't see Aaron Rodgers throw passes like that. You know, they they were they didn't have words for it. They were very confused. Um, you know, it it from how everyone was talking about it and just watching it, it did look like it was Aaron Rodgers' fault. It looked like he just sailed the ball, um, which you're just not used to seeing. You know, Aaron Rodgers has been so great for so long. You're just not used to seeing him have a season like he's having uh so that's just it's just a weird it's just a weird thing to watch whenever again you're used to watching greatness so it's kind of like tom brady like for years they were calling for him to fall off this cliff off this cliff and finally this year it looks like he finally hit this cliff but you're just not used to seeing it um yeah aj Dillon had a pretty big game uh he was had some catches out of the backfield he got two touchdowns um then he got hurt uh, didn't I didn't see the injury happen. I saw him get tackled, and I saw the tackle that happened, but you know, it didn't look like anything out of the ordinary. It just looked like he got tackled. Um, so we'll have to see what they say about that. Um, Aaron Jones essentially got benched after that fumble, which was interesting to see until they needed him on fourth and one to get the first down and, and clinch the game, essentially. Um, you know, you still see Aaron Rodgers yelling at his receivers. Uh, Christian, he he made a motion to Christian Watson. Watson didn't turn around. The, the ball fell out of his feet. Uh, one of the plays, 
Um, he threw it out to Romeo Dobbs, and he and he called it, and he didn't bring a tackle, and he was yelling at him to do something. I don't know if he wanted him to come further back on the screen or run forward. I don't know. But just some grown pain still with rookie wide receivers as your main options. Um, Randall Cobb had a pretty big drop in this game, so the passing game really wasn't doing it tonight for Green Bay, but they didn't need it because Aaron Jones, even though his was a receiving touchdown, but essentially a run because it's just one of those little swing passes quick out to the halfback. Um, Aaron Jones got a touchdown. AJ Dillon had two. Um, Dillon was just running through tackles tonight, too, before he got hurt. And like He was getting hit in the backfield, and he was just running through tackles. So um, that was good to see for Green Bay. But they get a win that they should have got. Uh, they need to pretty much, I think they have to win out to make the playoffs, and that's going to be really tough for them. Miami's not going to be an easy win. Um, but Miami's on a losing streak, so, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting because Miami also needs a win to kind of keep their playoff hopes uh, churning since they're in the seventh seed right now. So, um, you know, it's going to be an interesting game. It's going to be a tough game. So hopefully the uh, Colts and Chargers game gets flexed out on Monday night. I don't want to watch that on primetime um, <laughs> for another game, but we'll see what happens. Um, but yeah, so Green Bay gets the W they needed. Um, most people, I think, probably expected Green Bay to win tonight. Los Angeles just has too many injuries uh, everywhere at this point. Aaron Donald, I think, is the biggest one, in my opinion. Obviously, Matthew Stafford, Cooper Cup um, on the offensive side, but uh, that, that Aaron Donald one if they wanted to have a chance to win on their defense, I have to feel like that one just pretty much took it, took it out of them. So a big win for green Bay and moving on, they, they got to beat Miami next week. That concludes our week 15 analysis, uh, moving on to what's happening in the sports world. Um, if you don't know, and been living under a rock, the world cup happened. Uh, they crowned a champion in Argentina. Um, personally, I was rooting for France because Mbappe is my favorite player in the soccer world right now. Um, and for no lack of trying on his part, this man got a hat trick. Uh, his goals were amazing. Um, you know, he got two goals in a minute time frame, which is, if you know soccer, is insane. Um, to tie the game up when they were down 2 nothing, it looked over. It looked over for them. that He got a goal in the 80th and 81st minute to get sent into extra time. And then Argentina scores an extra time to go up 3-2. And you think, all right, they only got 10 minutes left. This game's over. Mbappe comes back, gets another goal, gets his hat trick. And um, France and Argentina, for the last two World Cups, they didn't meet in the finals uh, in 2018, but they met in the World Cup and in the knockout stage. And they gave us a 4-3 thriller in 2018 uh, with France going on top. Uh, and in this time, Argentina beats them in shootouts. Um, but it, if... If you've never watched soccer and that's the only soccer match you've you've watched, do not watch more soccer. You will not get a better match than that. You just won't. You it, you just won't. Um, it, I'm, it's unfortunate it had to come down to penalties. Uh, I don't like the fact that a penalty decides a world championship. I know people in soccer think it's really exciting. For me, I feel bad for Mbappe and people um, – like the like the people who fought on defense to only let a certain amount of goals get in for the entire match because Mbappe made his his penalty shot. He he made three goals to tie it for his team. So he did everything he literally could do, right? And then because the coach made some early subs and you had guys who might not have been used to the pressure of penalties or and guys who aren't goal scorers up there taking penalties, um 
it was just too big of a moment for France and their players, and they and they crumbled um, in the penalties. And Argentina made all four of theirs and and go on to win. But I would like to see something like kind of like hockey has done, where they take less players off the ice, so you have less players on the ice. So I think that'd be cool. Like if you start extra time, and you instead of having all eleven, maybe you have nine, and then like if you go fifteen minutes, because that's how long extra time is until they switch sides. Take another two guys off. Now you have seven, you know, and then and then you're gonna get some more space and be able to open things up. But um, shout to Argentina. Messi is the goat. Um, he was already the goat. He did not need a World Cup to solidify his goatness. But in the world of championships, uh, I guess people for some people needed this for him. Um, and so shout to Messi for finally getting over the hump of the World Cup and what is most likely his final World Cup. Um, he. He played stellar. He did everything he needed to do for Argentina, so shout to Messi. But uh, Mbappe is coming for that goat throne because he almost had back-to-back World Cups, which would have been insane. Um, and it's really tough to do. It hasn't been done since the 60s, so um, that's kind of what's going on in the, in the sports world. On my end, uh, Ovechkin got over 800 goals, and he also did that by getting a hat trick, which... You know, to go out in OV style, go get a hat trick to, to get your 800 goal is pretty pretty dope as well. Um, and then going into the NBA, Anthony Davis is hurt again. Shocker. Um, that man just can't seem to stay healthy. Um, it's just sad because when he is healthy, he's one of the best players in the planet, you know. But man just can't stay healthy, and it, it just sucks. And I'm not, even, I'm not even a Lakers fan. It just sucks for the game of basketball because – for me, I like to see all the superstars healthy. So I'd love to see Kawhi Leonard healthy. I'd love to see Anthony Davis healthy. You know, I'd like to see these guys healthy. And and whenever they're hurt, it's just not as fun, you know, to, to watch the basketball. So um, that's everything going on in the sports world for me. Julius, what you got? Well, as you said, the World Cup was definitely the main thing going on this weekend. And I, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I'll be the first to admit I am not a big soccer fan. I don't follow the game super closely or anything like that. I am more of a casual fan. but I found myself completely captivated by the World Cup final. And it's just awesome to see a match where you have two teams, two nations with rich histories and everything else. You have, like you said, two of the best players now for sure. Arguably two of the best players of all time. And I know Kylian Mbappe is younger, but I think you can already put him in that category. Not not put him in, not necessarily put him at the top, but he's starting to get in that discussion. And to see both of those guys deliver in the World Cup final, that, that was awesome for me. So, you know, Argentina, like you said, they go up 2-0, and normally that means game over. <laughs> and that's in any soccer match, let alone a World Cup final. Normally teams start to get real defensive after that, and the goal is just to kind of try to kill the clock as much as you can. And for the most part, Argentina was able to do that, and then it was like Mbappe said, no, we're not having it. So... He gets to gets the first goal on the penalty. Uh, and I, I just love the fact that he gets the goal. He sees his facial expression doesn't change. He snatches the ball out of the net himself and puts it back like, hey, let, let's go. Give it to me again. <laughs> and then he delivers the, the match tying goal. And uh, then he lets some emotion out. And then now, now you're thinking, okay, now France has all the momentum. And, you know, Argentina came with so much pressure because it had been a long time by their standards since they had won a World Cup. So now you start to feel all that. But then Argentina goes ahead, and France is able to respond, and now it goes to a shootout in a penalty kick situation. I'm with you. I'm with you as far as the exact plan. 
I would much rather see you maintain the integrity of the game by playing the game just with like lesser, like you said, lesser players, but keep the basis of the game the same. I just think that penalty kicks is just too much of a uh, just as a silly way. And I, I hate to say that because I know soccer purists love the shootout penalty kick type situation, but I, I just think that it's it's gimmicky. It just feels very gimmicky to me to, to decide a championship with penalty kicks. Uh, but that said, you know what it is going in? You had the penalty kick situation. Again, Messi and Mbappe both came through with their penalty kicks, so you knew it was going to come down to the other guys, and Argentina's other guys were better than France's other guys, and Argentina's uh, goaltender uh, was uh, better than France's. So that that ended up being the difference in the game right there. And then uh, I do like Argentina's goalkeeper as well because he, he, he'll let you know. <laughs> when, he, when he makes a play, he'll let you know about it. And uh, he was he was willing to, to go up in players' faces and, and hold the ball in front of them and do all kinds of stuff to try to, to be an intimidator. He, he just seemed like he was more ready for the moment than France's goaltender was. And I thought that was a big difference. Uh, but Argentina goes out and wins. And, you know, I, I didn't have a favorite one way or the other. I, I like Lionel Messi. I like Kylian Mbappe. But I will say that I felt good for Lionel Messi because even though he's in that greatest player of all time discussion, he still had to deal with a unique situation of, because most other countries, he'd be the undisputed hero of their soccer history. But for Messi, he has been in the shadow of Diego Maradona for so long because Maradona delivered a World Cup and Messi never did. So for him to finally come through, like you said, that 35 years old, probably last opportunity for him to come through, I felt good for him because he doesn't have to hear that, yeah, you're the greatest except, you know, now he can just be, I'm not the greatest, I'm the man. I'm the best that Argentina has to offer. You know, people can argue between Lionel Messi and somebody like Pele as far as who's the greatest overall player is. But I think for him, that national pride means a lot to him. And so to now have delivered everything you could possibly deliver to Argentina, I think it's huge for Lionel Messi. So, again, I didn't have a favorite going into the game as far as who I – I didn't have a, a an emotional favorite for who I wanted to win. But I felt good that Messi got that last – part of the puzzle solved as far as having as complete of a resume as a soccer player could possibly have. Um, another thing I'll get into just real quick, a couple of baseball signings over last week or so that I thought were interesting. Uh, one, Carlos Correa gets a 13-year deal to go to the San Francisco Giants. That's not something I would have done. It's not a move I would have made. Uh, it felt like the Giants had that deal on the table for whoever was going to take it. And when guys like Aaron Judge passed up, I feel like Carlos Correa was like option C or D. I just don't think he elevates that team a lot. I think that's a contract that they're going to regret relatively early into the deal. Not a fan of any of these 12 and 13 year contracts going to guys that are either approaching 30 or already 30. Because you already know the last four or five years of that deal are going to be rough, even with the universal DH. But I just don't see that. I, I just don't see the hype in Carlos Correa. I mean, I know he won a championship with Houston. But I just I, I don't see him as a I see him as a good individual player, but not great. And I just don't think he's the type of guy that can take a San Francisco Giants team that fell back to earth last year and elevate him back to being a playoff contender by himself. On the other hand, uh, the Giants lost a free agent and Carlos Rodon, who ends up going to the New York Yankees. Carlos Rodon is an NC State guy, so you know I got to give him his credit. I'm looking forward. 
forward to seeing what Rodon can do. Uh, throughout his career, the only thing that's been a concern has been his durability. This, the raw stuff that he has as a left-handed starting pitcher has never been in question. Uh, the last couple of years, Rodon has been able to deliver sub-three ERAs while maintaining a significant strikeout rate. I think he's going to be a key piece to the Yankees. They didn't have a reliable third option. You know, you had Garrett Cole, who's been pretty good. You know, he's been getting paid a lot of money, but he's been pretty good. Yeah, Nestor Cortez Jr., who's had a pretty good season last year, nice breakout season, but the depth wasn't there for the Yankees' rotation. So now you add Carlos Rodon, you add that left-hander to the rotation. I think that makes a huge difference. He's not signed to one of these 12- or 13-year deals. He's signed for six. So I love the deal. Again, he's a Wolfpack guy, but even if he wasn't a Wolfpack guy, I would love the deal for the Yankees because starting pitching is definitely something they needed to improve uh, with their depth. And so now they have another piece of that rotation. I like him a lot better than Jamison Tyon and some of the other starters they've had there. So good move for the Yankees to get my man Carlos Rodon. As always, Julius and I appreciate y'all giving us a listen. Um, make sure you follow us at Two Guys Four Balls Podcast. We, uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, and just a reminder, we are going to be off the next two weeks for the holidays. We got families. We got things we like to do as well, not just discuss sports, which we do enjoy. And we, we appreciate all the listens that y'all give us. But uh, we're just going to take some time to, you know, take a nice mental break, uh, you know, health break, and, and just enjoy the holidays and the, and the new year coming in. And we'll be right back. Uh, for week 18 analysis right before the playoffs and don't worry we'll give you all some of our analysis during week 16 and 17 don't 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 worry about that but um uh, we'll be back uh, for definitely for week 18 and uh right before the playoff push so uh, again we always appreciate your, y'all listening to us and then we'll catch you in two weeks thank you for listening to the two guys four balls podcast <laughs>